Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Greg Ashman. Now, long-time listeners of the show will know that Greg first appeared back in early 2017, where he opened my eyes to the wonders of cognitive load theory. Now, that conversation was an absolute game-changer for me. Without it, I have no doubt whatsoever that I would not have gone on to do all the reading and experimentation that I did, which would have meant there would have been no how I wish I'd taught maths, and hence, no scientifically proven way of inducing sleep in newborn babies across the land. So, we have Greg to thank for that. So, when Greg announced that he had a book coming out, provocatively titled The Truth About Teaching, and I was lucky enough to be sent a copy, I just had to have him back on the show. And I was very conscious that we covered new ground from our last interview. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, Greg and I discussed the following things, and plenty more besides. Since we last spoke, what is the most interesting piece of research that Greg has read? Has he changed his mind about anything? How about a new favourite failure? What does John Sweller make of the growth in popularity of cognitive load theory? And do the principles of cognitive load theory apply to children aged 3 to 5? And then we turn our attention to Greg's wonderful new book. Is it significant that the book starts with a chapter on classroom management? We discuss four easy-to-implement strategies and routines for improving behaviour and classroom management. How should a teacher go about finding out the behaviour policy of a school that they are considering working at? And then it's time for motivation. What does Greg mean when he says we should seek to motivate students about the thing we want them to learn and not about something else? Does Greg believe in giving students choice in their learning? How does he answer the question, when will I ever need this in real life? What alternatives to explicit teaching, if any, does Greg use in his teaching? What is the best piece of planning advice Greg would give to any aspiring maths teacher? And I reckon this applies to any subject. What does Greg's marking and feedback process look like? What gets Greg through the tough times that inevitably happen when you're a teacher? And finally, can we fast-track teachers to expertise with books like Greg's? Or is there a necessity to make mistakes and gather up a bank of personal experiences? Now, I'm going to come out and say it once again, and I know you're getting sick of me saying this. I think this episode is an absolute classic. For me, it is as good, if not better, than our first conversation, and that will take some beating. We cover so much ground, from effect sizes to growth mindset, calling in at game-based learning, slow-motion problem-solving, and whole-class feedback along the way. Now, whilst Greg's book is aimed at new teachers, I am sure this conversation will demonstrate there is so much in there for teachers of any age or experience. And finally, this is certainly one for you non-maths teaching colleagues to enjoy. In fact, I somehow managed to limit myself to just one math-specific question. I hope I'm feeling alright. 
Two quick plugs before we carry on. Obviously, if you buy one book as a result of this episode, then make it the truth about teaching. But if you're interested in reading about 12 years of maths teaching mistakes, then maybe take a chance on my book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, available from all good and all evil bookstores. And if you have read the book, and thank you so much for taking the time to buy it, if you could give it a quick review, that would be ideal. So long as it's a good one, of course. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of some of the most intelligent, engaged, connected podcast listeners in the world, then I'm now offering the opportunities to sponsor episodes of this podcast. Just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the packages available. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce once more Greg Ashman. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, so I am delighted to welcome back to the podcast what I'm describing as as a favourite of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. That's Mr. Greg Ashman. So firstly, welcome back, Greg. Cheers. Now, Greg, you were first on the show early 2017, and it was it's it's probably one of the most talked about episodes. And whenever I'm lucky enough to speak at conferences and stuff, teachers always come up to me and say, I love the Greg Ashman episode. And I think the reason it was kind of so popular was because it focused on on cognitive load theory. That was one of the kind of main drivers and one of the main topics that we spoke about. Um, and uh, it was one of the first times that, that I think certainly for myself and, and a lot of listeners really got to kind of think hard about it. So we're going to dig into a couple of things about cognitive load theory. But the focus of this particular interview is going to be on your book. So if listeners want to know more about cognitive load theory, I suggest that they check out our previous interview. But my first question for you, Greg, is it's now been, well, certainly over a year since you've been on the show. Um, and I know you're a, an avid reader of, of research. So what, what would you say the most interesting piece of research that you've read since we last spoke has been? Uh, you know what? It's 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 great to be back on the show. I had to look up when when uh, I was last on um, <laughs> because I didn't, re- you know, because I, I was I was thinking about this question um, and I didn't realize it was such a long time ago now. It was February last year. That's right. It really surprised me. Um, the, the thing that um, uh, that has really hit me. Well, look, I'm, I, I read a lot of research and I, I see a lot of interesting things all the time. And anyone that follows my Twitter account will, will be able to spot when I've um, been opening up all my RSS feeds because I'll be <laughs> tweeting out links to a number of papers. So there's lots of things. But the, the thing that I've picked here is important because it feeds into a, a big shift in my thinking that's taken place um, over the course of my blogging. And I first started blogging in about 2012. Um and it's a paper by, um, I think, I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's, it's Luchin. So I think that's his name. Luchin, Hans Luchin, um, uh, Christine Merrill, and Peter Timms. And what they did is they uh, basically asked the question, what's the effect of school? So they looked at kids um, and they did this thing called a uh, regression continuity analysis, which is very posh. But basically, essentially, the way it works is you can get two very similar kids who are in different year groups at school. If one's born on the 1st of September and one's born on the 31st of August, there's hardly any 
difference going to be between those two kids, except they'll be in different school years. So by looking at um, differences between what kids that fall either side of that border can do, you can sort of estimate the effect of a year of schooling. And they did this with primary school kids in the UK. And they don't mention it in, in the abstract, really. Uh, but this ties into um, our discussion that's been going on in the education community for some time um, about effect sizes. Yes. Um, because what they noticed is if you do and uh, your very uh, knowledgeable audience will know, I, I often have to sort of uh, explain this in a, in, a, in a different terms, but your audience of math teachers will know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, when you've got, for an effect size, it's really a simple uh, fraction. It's the difference in means divided by the standard deviation. And uh, if you do that for these kids as they go up through school, you find that it gets smaller as they go through the school system. So the effect um, on reading in early primary school is huge. The effect on reading in later primary school is very small. Now, you might say, so what? Well, it, this is really important because we've got all these people running around. Uh, Hattie sort of is probably the most famous uh, in his visible learning book. Was that 2008, 2009? Uh, not yeah, sure. Anyway, so. he, he listed all these different things and he lists effect sizes for all these different sort of interventions. Now, when I first started the, reading the research, I was quite convinced by this. It seemed quite reasonable. Um, he, he has a good narrative around it. He says, look, you've got all these studies, they're varying qualities, um, everything works a bit in education, whatever you do, there's a bit of a, an effect. Um, on average, it's about 0.4 when you work out this effect size, difference in means over standard deviation. Um, so we'll look for things north of that. And then he sort of lists all these interventions. But, of course, you, if you then start to think, well, wait a bit. Is that valid? Is that a valid thing to do? And the first thing that hit me was when I actually started to do a bit of research in cognitive load theory. And I looked at one of these effect sizes for something that I knew about. So I looked at the effect size of worked examples in Hattie. And I think it's something like 0.57. And that's not. It's not bad. It's above his tipping point of 0.4, but it's not huge. Mm. And, and one of the reasons it's not huge is because um, the, the studies, um, not to put to find a point on it, are quite high quality. So <laughs> if you want a very large effect size, you want to run a really bad study. <laughs> um, if you want a large effect size, you also want to run it. And this is where this paper that I'm talking about fits in. You want to run it with really young kids like doing early reading or something like that, that'll give you a larger effect size. Obviously, there's two ways you can affect the effect size. You can change the, the difference in the means somehow, uh, which is what we often sort of imagine when we're thinking about yes. the effect size. But of course, because it's a fraction, you can also reduce the standard deviation. So yes. another way you can change the effect size is you can take a narrow strata of kids of very similar ability profile, and then the standard deviation will be smaller, and you'll generate a larger effect size. Now, why is that important? Well, um, you've got, uh, similar to Hattie, you've got the EEF, Education Endowment Foundation Toolkit. Um, and I've had a bit of a look at, uh, they, they've got these various strands, and they, again, they're, they're generating effect sizes. They express them of, as in terms of months of additional progress, but really it's just a conversion from this effect size number into these months. And I had a look at... Um, metacognition and self-regulation um, 
And, and what's very striking when you look at the literature uh, summary that sits behind that strand is the, the, the way it was set up. Initially, all these strands. I'm going on a bit here. Aren't I? <laughs> no, it's fine. It's good. Uh, initially, all these strands were um, uh, summaries of the evidence as it stood. And then the, one of the things that the EEF does is that they run their own randomized control trials, which are good quality designs. Yeah. And with the thinking that as they run these randomized control trials, they'll feed the results back in and refine the um, effect size for this strand. And that's very noticeable. When you look at the data that sits behind that, is that the the, the non-EEF studies, the studies that they sort of started off with, with one or two exceptions, have higher effect sizes than the EEF studies. So once they started testing these things with good quality randomized control trials the effect sizes go down now all of this adds to picture of um really trying to summarize something with an effect size and trying to compare effect sizes when you don't know what the study mm. quality is when you don't know the age of the kids often like in metacognition and self-regulation some of the outcome measures are things like writing some are maths some are critical thinking skills. Now, what if it's just easier to, de to develop kids' critical thinking skills, say, than it is to develop their maths? Well, you'll get a higher effect size for critical... I don't know if that's true, but if it were, you'd get a higher effect size for the critical thinking skills and the maths. And then what you're just going to do, you're just going to sort of average them all together and come up with an overall effect size. It just doesn't make any sense. So although very early on when I started blogging, I was quite uh, happy to use these effect sizes... Um, you know, and, and talk about them and uh, reference them when when I was constructing my arguments. I don't think that's a valid thing to do anymore. Um, and this Lutgen paper just sort of feeds feeds into that. What I think now that people like the EF should do instead is they should ditch this um, effect size measure, this months of additional progress measure, get rid of it completely, and and instead keep these um, strands if they want. Although metacognition and self-regulation is impossibly mm, broad it just yes. captures almost anything that you can think of so i would split that up a bit but keep the strands but then give us a teacher-friendly literature review and just say look with young kids we you find this and when you look at writing interventions you get bloody blah, blah and and there are some limitations with the research on this because of bloody blah, blah. And then we've just got this narrative that we can. Now, for most of these things, such literature reviews already exist because any paper on the subject that's published, any scientific paper that's published on in that area will have a literature review at the start. Of it. But they're very unfriendly and they don't make much sense and they're just packed full of references. Um, so organisations like the EEF could instead sort of focus on doing teacher-friendly, very clear reviews of the research in those areas. But ditch, I think now, we've got enough evidence and, and Luchin is just another, uh, Luchin et al, sorry, is just another um, piece to add to it to suggest that it's just not a valid thing to do, to compare or to mush together these effect sizes and then try and say, oh, well, you know, metacognition, self-regulation gives you more of an effect than... Well, I know ability grouping or whatever it is. The ability grouping one is also very interesting in the um, EF toolkit because um, 
it wasn't very clear to me. Uh, Andrew Old, the, the blogger, did some, or Old Andrew, I'm not quite sure which way <laughs> around to say that, did some digging into that stram. And it was never very clear to me, but what turned out is that the, the EEF have a remit for disadvantaged kids. So when they interrogated the papers, and I, I didn't, when I initially read the, the strand, I didn't realise that they'd done this. They only looked for the effect size on um, the kids who are struggling. They didn't look at the overall effect size, what they looked at from the papers, what they took out and what they aggregated to get their effect size in the, in the toolkit was the effect on kids that are struggling. Now, again, given what I've just said, if you're going to select, if you're going to do, if you're going to salami slice just that population of kids, um, you're going to reduce the standard deviation yes. and you're going to get a larger effect. So, again, <laughs> we're just not, none of these, it, it seems like a really seductive idea that mm. we can just generate a number for all these different strategies and say, oh, this is a bigger number than that one, I'll do this, I won't do that. But it's not valid. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, this, Greg, isn't it? Because it, seductive is the exact, it's a brilliant way of describing it, that, because it seems like a really user-friendly or teacher-friendly way of getting uh, evidence-informed practice into school because you can say, right, I'm going to choose to use this method because it's got an effect size of 0.8, whereas this one's got 0.5. And I think I was reading somewhere about a head teacher who was going around putting post-it notes in teacher's pigeonholes saying, well done today, you, you used a technique that's got an effect size of 0.9 and so on and as soon as you then convert that into months of extra progress it sounds absolutely amazing but yeah you're right there's there's a danger isn't there that as soon as we try and kind of simplify and aggregate things into such an easily digestible single number then we're going to lose the subtleties of it we're going to lose the individual problems and biases with the different studies and um, Oliver Lovell um, who's, who's based over in Australia he's he interviewed John Hattie reasonably recently and, and put these questions to him and it's yeah it's, it's a tricky area so have you have you kind of just lost faith in in metro metro analyses and these these effect scores um I think effect size is incredibly useful um and in fact in my own work I'm computing effect sizes but it's not again it's it's a bit like the discussion that you can have on p-values, uh, which is another statistical measure, which I won't bore people with. <laughs> but uh, some people get really wound up about these things. Um, it's not like effect sizes are good or bad. Yes. It's, they are what they are. And if you're comparing like with like, if you've got a similar population of kids and you've got similar interventions. So let me give you an example. So if... Um, if you've got two reading interventions for struggling year four kids um, and you run one um, against uh, a control and then you run another against a control. And if you can say, well, these populations of kids are very similar, then the effect size, well, the effect size might tell you something. And in fact, there's an interesting paper by Robert Slaven that sort of does that. And he's got effect sizes for reading recovery and he's got effect sizes for reading interventions that are based on a more strictly phonics approach and the phonics effect sizes are bigger than the reading recovery effect sizes and he draws inferences that way. And I think that's that's a reasonably valid thing to do. I would still prefer that you actually run the things against each other. So I've been banging on on my blog for some time about the idea of when we do these randomized controls trials, instead of just comparing an intervention with business as usual, like not doing anything, we should compare the intervention with business as usual with a different intervention. Mm. So I have three arms. Because then, under those conditions, 
under the same conditions, same populations uh, that's been randomised, you'll see which of the interventions has the largest effect. And that's the only real way, ultimately, of directly comparing one intervention with another. But, you know, under limited conditions... So, for instance, in my PhD, uh, I'm, I'm running a series of experiments with similar groups of kids um, doing similar things with similar outcome measures. And so it's valid to compute an effect size and say, well, did it change much between these two experiments or blah, blah, blah. The problem is when you, you're not comparing like with like anymore. And that, that's when the effect sizes fall apart. When, and and, and the, the really insidious thing about um, the kind of meta-analysis is, if you think about it, the worst studies have the largest effect sizes and there's more of them. <laughs> so if, if you have no screening criteria, you're going to end up with answers that are biased towards the evidence from the worst studies. Yes. Um, so you don't want that. Uh, but you can go too far the other way as well. Like the, the, What Works Clearinghouse in the US, um, they have these really strict criteria. So before they'll consider looking at a study, they've got, they've got to pass all these tests. It's got to be randomized and they're really, really strict. And um, something like direct instruction, which is capital D, capital I, the yes. Zig Engelman and colleagues, University of Oregon stuff. They haven't got one study. Like Now, this thing has been <laughs> around <laughs> since the late 60s. Um, it's been analysed hundreds of times, but only one study meets their criteria and it doesn't show anything. So according to the What Works um, Clearinghouse, direct, direct instruction doesn't work because there's, there's only one study and it doesn't, doesn't show an effect. Um, and, of course, that's a nonsense as well because... You don't want to discount all the like the problem is a lot of the studies in direct instruction there was a meta-analysis recently and Dylan William linked to it but a lot of them have been they're not perfect rigorous RCTs a lot of them are conducted by people um, who uh, are involved in developing direct instruction programs because frankly no one else will research them <laughs> so they have to research them themselves and again that puts a slant on it now um, does that mean we just disregard all of that information or do we just sort of take it all on faith and say, oh, well, that's all great, that, that must all be perfect? We need a much more sensible approach, which is to say, well, looking at the evidence as it stands, you know, these, are, these trials aren't gold standard, but there's a lot of them, and they do seem to show, and sort of summarise it that way, rather than, um, you know, trying to, um, you know, impose these overall numbers and overall measures on on things in a, in a way where you're not comparing like with like. Got it. Jeez. I'll tell, I genuinely, Greg, I could talk to you about meta-analyses and effect sizes uh, for the entire episode, but we, 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 best, we best spin on to something else. Just just a few more kind of catch-up questions before we, we dig into your book. I wonder, yeah. I mean, you mentioned effect sizes, but I wonder, is there anything else you've changed your mind about, either since we've spoke or something that we didn't speak about last time? Anything significant that you think slightly differently about now? Did we talk about mindset? No, we, we brushed upon it, but I'm definitely happy to, to dig into that. Yeah, go on. So tell, what, what's your current view on that? So um, there's two aspects to mindset theory. This is Carol Dweck's uh, mindset. Well, she's worked with other people, but it's mostly associated with Carol Dweck. And two, the two aspects are that there's this thing called a growth mindset and a fixed mindset, and kids that have a growth mindset tend to do better than kids that have a fixed mindset. So that's sort of proposition number one. And proposition number two is that you can actually affect yes. um, kids' mindset. So you can intervene, you can do a school-based intervention where you can change some of these fixed mindsets 
or all of them, or I don't know, into growth mindsets. Now, I read this stuff way back when I was first starting to engage with research. It all seemed pretty reasonable to me. Mm. Uh, it's it seemed like a good way of talking about things, like you haven't achieved something yet, rather than yes. you know. And I would never want to say to a kid, you, "There's no way you could," because you, I know as a teacher that I just you can't make predictions at the individual level. So I don't like some kid could be presenting in year nine as um, really struggling with maths. I can't say you won't be an astrophysicist because yes. I don't know because they might be an astrophysicist. Um, you can't make predictions with any accuracy at the individual level. So this idea of saying, of adopting a growth mindset and talking in terms of a growth mindset, I didn't have any problem with it at all, and I still don't, and I still will talk that way, and I will, um, you know, and, and that's how I will engage with the students, and I think it's a very healthy thing to engage with students with. But I took the research pretty much on face value, and, you know, Cal Dweck says that... Uh, Growth mindset is better, and Carol Dweck says that you can do these interventions and you can improve a kid's growth mindsets. And I just sort of took that on board. Um, I was very suspicious of the way – so some of my very early blogs would have said uh, that I was suspicious of the way that schools might operationalize this. So, mm. you know, just sticking a few posters yes. on the wall is probably not going to do the trick. And I'd had really bad experience with um, – building learning power at a school that I taught at in the UK and, um, you know, the sort of going through the motions and parroting things at the end of every lesson because we were supposed to parrot these things at the end of every lesson. So I could see that it would flounder um, in the inaction, but I, I didn't really question that it was sound psychological science. Since then, however, the landscape has changed a lot. We've had the big replication crisis in psychology, where a lot of findings have failed to replicate when other people in other labs have tried to um, reproduce those experiments. And it seems that mindset might be one of these things. We've had a number of meta-analyses now which challenge, depending on which one you look at, challenge both of the key propositions. So it might be that kids with a fixed mindset actually can do quite well. And it might be that whether you can change kids' mindsets with a school intervention or not, or whether you can but it doesn't have an effect because it doesn't matter what mindset they've got, all of this is now in question. And um, I'm just not really convinced of the basic science of it anymore. Um, however, <laughs> big caveat, I'm not going to stop changing the way that I talk to kids because I still think this is a very healthy, um, positive um um, way of engaging with kids and you know um, certainly we don't want to be uh, starting to say oh you're, you're only cut out for this or you know yes. I, 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 that's not the kind of way that I want to engage with students at all. Yeah it's an interesting one it was probably the first piece of research I engaged with that as, as well Greg because it kind of broke out of the mold of just the kind of education bubble didn't it it was quite popular Dweck's work and it was being used in a lot of sports uh, sports teams and stuff like that and yeah it's it's interesting that question in both propositions because I'd, I'd question the whether schools could intervene in it. I'd certainly not questioned whether growth mindset itself potentially was if for some students a fixed mind a fixed mindset may lead to better achievements or whatever. That's yeah, that's 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 an interesting one. Um, well, just, I think perfectionism also, and uh, fixed mindset tend to go yeah together a bit true. as well, and and perfectionism 
can be good in some yes. circumstances. I think I'm, I'm going slightly off piece. This is not my area of expertise. <laughs> it had a huge impact on me. I had little kids, and I bought Mindset, the little popular science version book uh, by Carol Dweck. Right. Um, and and I, I remember sort of ringing my sister up and saying, "Oh, you have got to read this book." Yes. Um, it was, but of course, at the time we were reading books on how to stop your baby crying, and we were quite used to sort of reading these parenting yes. advice books and so I, it kind of lodged itself in my brain in a in a in an uncritical way yes. i suppose because i was quite receptive to it at the time yeah that's that, fascinating that greg um next one i wanted to ask you um one of my favorite questions to ask anybody on the podcast is is about their favorite failures something that they've uh, they've done in a lesson or something that they've tried that didn't go to plan but they learned something from it i wonder if you'd experienced anything like that in the last kind of 18 months since we've spoke any favorite failures uh well it depends on what you mean by a failure um <laughs> I've managed to not teach things as well as my colleagues, and uh, we know this because, um, as I mentioned last time, we have a system where we analyse the data yes. and we can look at individual questions. And so a new colleague came into the Year 12 team and um, she, she was simply teaching certain things uh, better than I was. So I wanted to get all over this and figure out <laughs> what was going on. Really, and it it's not... It's not hard, this, but it's something that I keep forgetting. Um, and I keep forgetting it throughout my career. And I have to keep reminding myself. You've got to keep getting uh, feedback from the kids all the time. So one of the ways that I, I set about trying to fix this state of affairs is I got really uh, – I, I use mini whiteboards as part of my teaching anyway. But I got really into the mini whiteboards and got the mini whiteboards out and got the kids – doing a lot of this, these sorts of problems. I can't, I'm just trying to remember what it was now. I've read a blog post about this at the time, I think. What was it they were doing? Oh, it's gone. Um, but I can I can give you a link to the blog yeah, post sure. anyway, if anyone's interested in the, the specific bit of maths, which I've, I've, has just passed my... <laughs> and left my brain. But anyway, <laughs> the specific bit of maths that um, my kids weren't doing as well as her kids and so got the mini whiteboards out and of course I started to get the information off the kids um, that I needed to address the misconceptions to move them forward. Now um, la the previous year I would have taught it just as badly but I just wouldn't have known Yes. because I wasn't teaching with a colleague for whom that was a particular strength so I, I, would have, I wouldn't have thought I'd failed at teaching that concept I'd have just thought oh that's a hard concept everyone finds it hard all the teachers, none of the kids. But because I had this new colleague who came in and could teach it more effectively than I could, um, I then sort of adopted. Uh, so I, I got many whiteboards out to, to evaluate what was going on with the kids and see what they were doing. And um, she did this thing. Um, she, she does the questions in slow motion. So um, one of the problems I was doing, so we were doing um, – I don't know, do you do trig equations much in the UK where you've got, you know, um, sine of 2x plus pi on 3 equals a half or something? Yeah, you, you do yeah. you're doing it, you're yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, I, was, I was asking a question like this and I was getting the kids to do the whole question on the mini whiteboard and what my colleague was doing was she was getting them to do it um, just one bit at a time. So the first thing you've got to work out is the reference angle. So what's got a sine 
um, value of a half. So, so she just get them to do that bit and hold it up on the moon whiteboard. Yes. And the bonus of doing that, you see, is that uh, you can see where the kids are getting off the bus and you can address the misconception yes. where it happens. Whereas if you wait for them to do the whole problem and they get the wrong answer, you've then got to try and backtrack and... And of course, what I, what I was doing is I was just then demonstrating the whole answer. And yes. It wasn't the whole answer that the kids needed. It was that they'd not memorized their exact angles or that they'd got confused when they were adding two pi or, or whatever it was. So, um, yeah, so, th so that's what I learned, really. And it was a really powerful thing to learn. Can I just ask, ask you on that, Greg? There's just two things, really. The first is when you say you use the data to figure out that your colleague was teaching better, what, what do you mean by that? Kind of an end-of-topic test? Is, is it that kind of thing? Uh, I think we have these things um, in Australia called SACs, which school-assessed coursework. They're, they're not coursework as I remember it from the UK, though, at all. Um, you design the task yourself. Uh, and then they get moderated against your school's actual VCE scores. So the person who uh, gets the top VCE score in the final exam, uh, whatever that score is, um, the person who got the, the top ranking in the SAC gets the equivalent of that score for their SAC. Right. So you sort of match the two populate. Anyway, you don't need to know all that. <laughs> but but these form a really important part of the landscape because they will account for a proportion of the kids' final um, grade. And of course, we want to prepare them for these sacks. So when you're in year twelve, you, you, which we're talking a lot about doing sacks and doing practice sacks or practice questions or things like that. So and and they'd be doing something like we have questions of the week as well. Um, which are usually sort of past exam style or SAC style questions. So they'll be doing something all the time. So it yes. becomes very apparent very quickly. If you've got two groups that um, say, so in this case, my, um, you could look at the, um, you could look at the prior attainment of the different groups uh, and you could say, oh, but so these, these scores on these questions are roughly equivalent. But then on this question, my group has dipped, but the other group hasn't dipped. So, um, ah, so the, the, so without being really scientific and being able to prove that it's definitely that, I mean, it could just be a random fluctuation, but you can make a pretty strong inference that yes. the teacher has taught that question. And particularly when it's the same thing that comes up a few times, you go, oh, if this is the same type of question here and my kids dip and uh, the, these ones don't. So you can make some pretty strong inferences there, that I think. That's fascinating, that. And the, the kind of second part of my question was, I guess it's one thing identifying it like that, but then it's, it's doing something about it. And I, I'm obsessed with effective departmental meetings. I'm on a bit of a mission to, to kind of pull together as many good ideas as I can for this. And one thing that struck me there is that you can imagine, Greg, and I don't know if you've seen this yourself, a lot of departmental meetings, first mistake I see a, a, a lot of departments make is it's just admin central, it's just filling in targets and going yeah. through detention policy and all this. But the other is, whenever it comes to teaching and learning, I don't think it's done as effectively as it can be because it's often okay how do you teach this and a teacher will showcase a resource that they've used or a fancy powerpoint or an activity or something like that but what struck me about what you're saying there is essentially you could have two teachers who are both using the same worked example but who are using it in, in different ways so yourself may be running through the full thing whereas your colleague is breaking it down into its individual components and and um, doing assessment for learning on both of those so i just wonder 
what does that process in your departmental meetings look like? Do you just, once you've got the data and do you have a word with your colleague and say, would you just mind demoing how you do that? Or is it more kind of a collaborative thing that just happens organically um, within the meeting itself? Well, we, we've been doing this a while um, now uh, and my maths teachers are, are pretty robust. We don't, in, we don't have meetings to do anything that we could do via email. So yes. I'm not going to do any, I'm not going to, you know, and now the announcements. I'm not going to do that because <laughs> we could just send those out very much. Um, so what we do is we put up a spreadsheet of data. So sometimes, sometimes we haven't even had a chance to look at the data in advance because, you know, saying we've only just got in. So we rock up to the meeting and go, oh, what what have we got in for this group? Oh, we've just done the the, the practice sack. Or so we meet across two tier, two, two year levels, uh, eleven and twelve. So. Um, I'm not teaching in year 11, but we're all teaching the same maths methods course. So I might say, oh, what, what, what are, what's your most recent data point to the year 11 teacher? Oh, well, we've just done a, um, a test on blah, blah, blah. So we'll pull up the Excel sheets and uh, we'll just sort of have a look at it and we'll go. And what, what, we, what we look for is we look for um, trends that are sort of positive. So um, we, we get, have a rough notion of the prior attainment of the groups, but that's not hugely important. If you've got a group that's uh, prior attainment is very low compared to the other groups, then what you're really looking for is any instances where that group outperforms the other groups, because mm. then you can say, oh, well, that's probably due to the teaching. So, but generally, you go across the data, you get an, a, um, a percentage or an average score for each question, and you look for anomalies where one teacher is uh, significantly up on the other teachers. And then what I do is I say I give him a board marker and I say, well, can you show us how you how you teach that? Yes. Um, and so they'll they'll start writing stuff on the board and we'll find, figure out that they've introduced an extra um, step or that they do it a particular way. That they thought everyone did it. Doesn't everyone do it that way? But no, we don't. Now we will though, because obviously. And it, and these are never things that you could. Oh, sometimes it's obvious, like with the. With the slow motion problem thing, as soon as my colleague articulated to me that that's what she did, it clicked. Yes. Like, I'm a I research cognitive load theory. Yes. Obviously, that would work. But sometimes it's not as obvious as I think, really, that's, that's a better way of doing it? Really? <laughs> mm. well, I wouldn't have thought that. But it, mm. and, and, and so we'll all sort of get behind it and give it a go. And, of course, we could be making some of these decisions based on statistical noise um we're not trying to prove sure. anything beyond scientific doubt but i think generally it moves us forward and but that's where we spend most of the time and, and people are pretty robust or they get to be pretty robust fairly quickly because um you know everyone's data's up there and often yes. it's you know often it's not mine that's the the highest score so people get used to that fairly quickly i think that's great, that, Greg. Absolutely brilliant, that. Um, a couple of questions just on cognitive load theory, because we're not going to touch upon this much when we talk about the book, but I know obviously people will be fuming at me if I don't ask you a couple of things. So the first is, um, since our interview, um, and obviously you're doing a PhD, which is heavily involved in cognitive load theory, how's your research uh, going for your PhD? Uh, it's going well. Um, I've done a number of experiments now. Um, <clears throat> I can't really... Uh, until they get published either in my thesis or in a peer-reviewed journal, it's not really the done thing to actually say. Yes, what I yeah, I believe so. Yeah, um, <laughs> because uh, I, I, it's not really right to make claims for having found research evidence if it hasn't been published. 
Um, but what I have been looking at, uh, and I think I might have mentioned it last time, is um, we're fairly clear, apart from anyone that looks at it from a fairly scientific perspective, and there are lots of people in education that would not and would dispute the validity of doing that and would take a much more sociological stance. But anyone that sort of looks at it from a scientific perspective, the evidence is fairly clear that explicit instruction is better than um, open-ended problem-solving, discovery learning, that sort of thing. But um, what's still a bit of an open question is whether it, the best thing to do is give explicit instruction right from the start or to let kids have a bit of a go at problem-solving, mm. maybe stuff it up, maybe not, and then give them the explicit instruction um, to see uh, whether, you know, having had a go, they'll be more attuned to the right answer. That's the, 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 the correct method. And this idea is known as, well, there's, there's several versions yes. of it, but the one that I've been looking at is, is uh, productive failure. So the idea is you give kids a problem to solve. They've got the background knowledge, so you don't have loads of jargon in there. You, you, they've got the background knowledge to at least be able to sort of attempt the the problem. The, the classic is the classic experiments that have been done involve standard deviations. So you'll give um, the, the stats for baseball hitters or something, and you'll ask the kids, yeah, which of these is the most consistent? And so they've got to, and they're not going to come up with standard deviation mm. themselves, but they'll have a go at coming up with some sort of method for solving the problem, and then you teach them standard deviation, uh, and then the idea is that they'll they'll learn more effectively that way than they will if you just sort of stood up and taught them standard deviation from the outset. Um, and there's a few studies that seem to show this, uh, quasi-experimental, a small number of randomised control trials. Um, it's an interesting area. So I've uh, I've decided to have a look at that with a what I think is quite a good experimental design that avoids some of the pitfalls of other uh, possible experimental designs, um, and I've done randomised control trials. I've, I've varied the complexity of the tasks that the that the kids have done. I, I've looked at because um, uh, I'm a maths and physics teacher, so I, I decided to sort of venture into a bit of train that hasn't been researched um, in this area, uh, which is a little bit of sort of physics. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I've done my experiments and I've got some interesting results and. Um, I'm writing up a paper and hopefully, you know, look to get that published. So when uh, I have got it published, obviously I'll be able to talk about <laughs> the results that I've found and what I think. I mean, because cognitive load theory, you see, would would suggest certainly for novice learners who are um, fairly new to the um, whatever it is that you're trying to teach them, that if you gave them just the problem to solve, that they might spend some time actively engaged in solving the problem but that would uh, fill up their working memory mm. to such an extent that they wouldn't actually retain much from that when they went into the explicit instruction um, that followed it um, but you, but that's so that's the sort of what you'd predict from cognitive load theory but then there's these other interesting ideas about um, uh, desirable difficulties yes. the work of Robert Bjork and um, the idea that this might sort of prime schema acquisition, this this sort of failed problem solving, etc. So that that's kind of the intersection of the two. It's very interesting in um, in the literature. You, you don't get now many people making a, a scientific case for um, inquiry learning. 
inquiry learning is still out there. It's quite a big thing in classrooms where, where kids sort of figure things out for themselves with um, facilitated input from the teacher. It's still out there um, in the in the ecology of maths lessons. But but the, the people who you'd associate with that, the constructivists, mm. um, now in the literature they're they're not really arguing the case for that anymore it's more that they've shifted to arguing for uh, perspectives like this productive failure so that's where the constructivist argument has sort of gone over the last 10 15 years or so geez that that's fascinating that greg I, I did a little bit of reading into productive failure for when i was writing my book it's and i think kapoor was the, the studies the studies that, that i was reading up on and in fact that standard yeah. deviation one and it yeah it, it it was almost kind of a fly in the ointment because I, I had like a nice coherent argument going throughout the book thinking okay this is novice well when you've got novice it's all about the worked examples and teacher-led instruction and all this kind of thing and then i start reading these studies and thinking oh god well what's going on here and i i didn't know whether it was perhaps it almost kind of provided some kind of i didn't know whether it was the schema acquisition argument or whether it was almost kind of what andrew blair and other people who are um, into inquiry maths talk about almost kind of providing a purpose for wanting to be to to receive instruction if that makes sense so almost realizing that their students reach a point where they they need to be taught something in order to to kind of progress further so mm. i'll be i'll be fascinated what uh, yeah what you find from that greg and i'll, I'll book you in for uh, you, you, to complete the greg ashman trilogy of podcast interviews getting you back on to speak about that that'd be great and um, can i just ask you a couple more quick questions about cognitive load theory the other is um, I know, obviously, well, I believe anyway, John Sweller's your kind of PhD supervisor. I wonder, do you get a sense from John what his take has been on the kind of increasing popularity of, of cognitive load theory, particularly amongst the teaching profession in the last few years? Is he kind of surprised by it? Is he pleased by it? Because a lot of the work kind of happened in the in the 90s, right, and early 2000s. And yet it's only been in these last few years that it's really come to the forefront. What's what's John's take on that being, Greg? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, when I see John, we talk about um, the designs of randomised control trials, <laughs> whether we need to include this paper and what this means and, and whether this is confounded and how we can get rid of that confound. He's very energetic, very switched on. Um, he's. Uh, I'd have to drink about three or four coffees to get to that <laughs> state. Um, he, But we don't really talk about um, we don't sort of sit back and chew the fat. Yes. One thing you have to bear in mind is that I'm based in Ballarat, um, and so it's a flight for me Flip to go to the University of New South Wales and see John. So when I get, get there, it's very much down to business and talking about the experiments. And, and he's very uh, direct and to the point. Um, and, but there's a, there's a reason for that. Like we don't, you won't see lots of acronyms in a Sweller paper because – um, of the split attention effect he doesn't want you to have to go and look up what the acronym means so he'll actually say what the thing is rather than put <laughs> an acronym in um, and he's very consistent like that so um you know i send him things and he'll, he'll come he'll, he'll bounce an email back to me within sort of sometimes within you know half an hour uh with his view i think if you i think i've got as good an idea as what he thinks about this as anyone else really and and a good place to start is to look at the paper he wrote on um story of research program mm. it's called and that tells you a little bit about his background and he talks about how difficult it has been being him really and researching what he's researched because he's swum against the tide everyone's um 
in math education research and education research and educational psychology um, have been banging the drum for problem solving for since at least the 1980s and that's essentially been the time that he's been active so um i i don't know i mean i think he's i think he's pleased i, th- I think he's pleased with the reception for the kirshner sweller clark 2006 yes. paper he spoke at research ed in melbourne um last year um but i to be honest i i don't sort of sit down and have a beer with him and say oh you know john how do you think that it's all planned out for cognitive load theory <laughs> perhaps i should one day i don't know but uh yeah, it, it, he, he's a very interesting character, and um, yeah, if you haven't seen that uh, video from the research head conference, it, it is on um, the website. His talk, it's 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 definitely worth watching. I'll put a link up to that. Fantastic. And the final question on cognitive load theory. And this is from a, from a, a, a listener. Um, somebody tweeted in with this. It's, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. This is Mr. Uh, Chahal. Um, so, and it's a, it's a question that got loads of likes from, from my primary colleagues and primary listeners. And, and the question is, do the principles of cognitive load theory apply to children aged three to five, given the opposition to formal teaching methods for this age group? Um, what's, what's your take on that, Greg? Because I think it's, again, it's becoming not well established established but it's it doesn't tend to be all that controversial amongst quite a significant amount uh, proportion of teachers that the principles of cognitive load theory and explicit instruction work well for for secondary school teachers but what about the for, for children sorry but what about what about youngsters what about these three to five year olds what's your take on it um well the the principles should apply um i'm not aware now this is so there are critics of cognitive load theory and the criticisms are quite valid. One of the criticisms is that um, cognitive load theory, the direct measurements of cognitive load, so trying to directly measure the cognitive load someone is experiencing are weak. So the obvious way is to ask them, you know, how how hard are you finding solving this problem essentially uh, you know how much mental effort are you putting in but that's that's essentially a survey question it's what you call a self report measure and they're not considered the the hardest kind of um, bits of data um so other things have been tried to be developed you know tracking people's eye movements and all this sort yes. of thing to try and but some people would say that well hang on um you've come up with this uh, theory cognitive load theory where you're positing that cognitive load has this really big impact on how kids learn but you can't even measure cognitive load um, <laughs> now of course this this would this kind of thinking would have done through evolution uh, because when darwin came up with his theory of evolution he couldn't um, explain the biological mechanism by which inherited characteristics were transmitted from one generation to the next um, so you could have said well darwin you you put in a lot of um, you, you, you put in a, you're saying that this this mode of transmission from one generation to the next is really important in shaping the way that species uh, develop and originate, but you can't even tell me what mechanism it is that mm. enables them. So it, you always get this in the development of science, but some people would say this is a big problem for cognitive load theory. The other big problem is um, the, the introduction a few years back of germane cognitive load. Yes. Then people tried to use it to explain experimental results, and you, set, you essentially ended up with a unfalsifiable situation. I won't go into that now because it's not as relevant to the, the point I'm trying to make in a roundabout sort of way. So the, the point I'm trying to make is I'm not aware of that many experiments that have directly done cognitive load experiments with three- to five-year-old kids. So you could therefore say, 
well, we can't know. We haven't done the experiments, three to five-year-old kids. Maybe people have, uh, but uh, none spring to my mind in the area that I've been investigating. So <clears throat> maybe they have taken place, but maybe. So you could say, you could take the critic stance and say, well, um, we'll take a sceptical stance here and say, we just don't know whether it applies to three to five-year-old kids. However, as a model, the theory certainly would make predictions about three to five-year-old kids in two very important um, areas. Firstly, cognitive load theory um, says it builds on Geary's theory of biologically primary and biologically secondary knowledge. And biologically primary knowledge are things that we've knowledge we've evolved to acquire. So, for instance, we've evolved uh, to acquire our uh, native tongue. So we can't be programmed with the words of our nature. We're not born knowing, um, you know, please and thank you and this, that and the other. We're not born with those words because they vary from culture to culture. So, but what we're born with is, in Geary's words, sort of modules for automatically acquiring um, that knowledge. And there's various other things that we acquire in this biologically primary way. Um, and that doesn't, that is not subjected to the, that's not subject to the constraints of, of working memory. Um, it's worth bearing in mind that there's a reason for working memory to be constrained. So it's not just a fault in our brains that means that we've got this really limited working memory. It's a design feature because if we didn't have it, then every time you read something or saw something, you would, your long-term memory would change and your long-term yes. memory would be in constant flux and it'd be chaos. And so the, the, the working memory sort of acts to regulate narrow changes in your long-term memory so that you don't end up making these catastrophic changes to your long-term memory. Well, with biologically primary knowledge, we don't have to worry about that because we already know, the body already knows that um, the body. <laughs> we, we're, these are good things to learn. This is not going to be uh, damaging. So we can acquire this vocabulary. And according to Geary, we've just got these modules that sort of hoover it up without these uh, working memory constraints. And then sitting on top of that is biologically secondary knowledge. Now, um, these things are not completely distinct. Mm. So, um, you know, in running, you can learn how to run at an elite athlete level. And quite a lot of the knowledge there would be uh, biologically secondary because it's not something we've evolved to acquire. You can sit and sort of learn and train and things like that. But, uh, you know, various other things parts of that would be biologically primary as well but so it's not it's not useful to see them as completely distinct categories uh, it's more that the biologically secondary sits on top of the biologically primary um now what what this why this would matter for three to five year olds is a lot of what three to five year olds learning is still in the biologically prim primary domain so they're learning how to get on with each other socialize and yes Again, in, in some settings, you would build up on that uh, with biologically secondary knowledge. So um, how to get along in a um, business meeting uh, would involve some sort of secondary aspects. Mm. But when they're three and five, they're just sort of learning various social interactions. And um, so th these, these kids are therefore spanning that, that, that um, divide between the biologically primary and the biologically secondary. And a lot of early years teachers talk about that their primary goal is to 
enable kids to sort of develop these social skills, develop these oral language skills, these build their vocabulary, all of which is essentially um, biologically primary. And so you wouldn't necessarily need to set up formal instruction, formal teaching in order to build those skills. If a kid has a cognitive impairment, uh, it might be that they would benefit from a formal teaching or if they've been neglected and they've not had uh, the same experience as the kids around them um, and that has uh, altered their development in some way. Again, they may. I'm not Mm. saying that they will, but they may benefit from explicit instruction. But uh, generally speaking, these biologically primary traits, everything else being equal, they should be able to acquire them relatively well without explicit instruction. What they won't be able to do without explicit instruction is is acquire biologically secondary um, knowledge. And this is really what we're talking about when we're talking about academic knowledge. So uh, reading, writing, um, basic mathematics, all of this is likely to be much more effectively taught um, using explicit instruction rather than um, asking kids to sort of acquire it through inquiring and interacting with the world, which is what what you would do if you, if you were trying to sort of develop biologically primary uh, knowledge and skills. So, um, and then you've got a values judgment. So, w- it's not it's it's almost as if it's not an argument about methods. The argument in early years, it seems to me, tends to be more about whether we should be teaching. Um, biologically secondary knowledge to kids and and at what age and and when so should kids uh in preschool start to learn uh, a bit of phonics knowledge for instance um that would be biologically secondary that's essentially academic but should we delay that you know kids in some countries don't go to school till they're seven or eight so so why would we insist on teaching four-year-olds phonics knowledge well again you could say because in, in English-speaking countries have a particularly difficult language that we have to learn. Mm. Um, but so it's if so to cut it all down. If you want to teach three to five-year-olds um, biologically secondary knowledge, academic knowledge and skills, then I'm fairly certain that um, the the best way to do that would be using explicit teaching. If that's not what you're trying to do, then uh, th- then that's not necessarily what you th- the best way to do it. So, a- again, it, it, it's coming back to what your objectives are. Got it. Flipping it. Fanta- fantastic. Well, that, that was all the preamble to get into your book. So that, that, but that was absolutely fascinating stuff. That. Th- thank you for that catch up. Um, I want to turn now to, to your book. Now, I, I, again, listeners will hopefully believe me on this. I only have people on to talk about the book whose book I genuinely enjoy. And I absolutely love yours. It's, it's called The Truth About Teaching. And my first question to you, Greg, is that I'm a massive fan of the title. Um, how early into the writing process did you come up with that? The Truth About Teaching? Um, well, pretty much from the off, um, I knew I wanted to write a book for new teachers. Um, and I don't know, I can't remember when I exactly came up with that title, but it was certainly that I had to go through a sort of pitch process. So I was contacted by a publisher. So I'd written an ebook, which I'd sold a few copies of online. And then a publisher bought that and contacted me uh, and said, oh, are you interested in writing a book? And I said, yeah, all right. He said, well, you'll have to put together a pitch. So I had to then outline the book, the title, what all the chapters would be on. And then uh, the publisher sent this pitch out to 
people to peer review it and say, would would they be interested in a book like this? Is it a book worth writing? Um, and when I got that back, um, you know, I then got the go-ahead to sort of write the book and, and everything else. Now, I don't know if that's how most books are written or started out, or I don't know if you had to do that for your book. Um, it was a similar kind of thing, yeah. Contacted yeah. by a publisher, then put a kind of pitch together. Yeah, it's a strange yeah. process. Yeah. So from the from the pitch, definitely, I had the title, and I think the the publishers like the title because uh, it shouldn't be, but it's slightly controversial. To, oh yeah. To, to talk about the truth about anything these days because we're <laughs> living in a quite a postmodern world where everything's relative and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, I, I thought it was. I, I don't I don't propose that I have the truth, but I do think that that's what we should be aiming for. And I think that's what we should be inching towards. Got it. Got it. And my, my other question just before we, we dive into it is obviously you're a prolific blogger. I mean, most days you put out a blog or at least a few times, a few times a week. Was the writing process for writing the book different to the blog? Did you kind of treat it as a series of kind of blog posts that you've kind of meshed together or, or was, was it completely different? Uh, I don't actually remember writing it. Um, <laughs> you definitely did write it, didn't you, Greg? Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't remember writing a lot of my blog posts either. I, <laughs> um, I wake up quite early, um, and my memories of thinking about lots of things, but I don't actually remember much about doing the writing. Uh, I seem to remember that getting the references right and uh, getting, you know all that was a bit painful and they'd sometimes go wrong and sometimes I'd, I'd get a paper that I liked but I couldn't find the reference and then I'd go on Google Scholar and it had a really crappy reference that obviously <laughs> wasn't right. So I remember that side of it. Um, and I remember sort of, because uh, I stuck pretty strictly to my original plan. Um, so each uh, chapter that I had to write, I'd already written paragraphs saying in the, for the pitch saying what the chapter was going to be about. So I'd sort of read the paragraph and go, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what I've got to cover here. And I do, and you've seen my book, so you know that each chapter starts with a few bullet points. Yes, yes. So I did those first. I'd do the bullet points. And then off I'd go. Um, and I thought what I would do is I'd write the whole thing, and then I'd go back and put the references in and change things. Based, oh, no, actually, that reference doesn't say that. I just mm. thought it had something enough to change what I've written. But I seemed to put the references in as I was writing. Um, so that wasn't my experience at all um but yeah it was a bit it was it's a bit of a blur but all my writing is, <laughs> is a bit like that got it fantastic well what i want to do for the remainder of the conversation is just just kind of delve into a few of the chapters and i'm not going to cover every single one but i want to kind of um focus in on focus in on things that we didn't cover last time and i want to start with chapter two greg which is on uh, classroom management and now your chapter one is kind of a brief history of education and then we we kind of get into the kind of practical stuff um in chapter two and i wonder firstly is it significant that the kind of first main chapter of the book is on classroom management well, what what kind of brought about that decision uh because it's the most important thing for a new teacher to um get a hold of um we've talked about inquiry learning and we've talked about explicit instruction already in in this interview um but i would rather a child of mine were in a class uh, that was doing inquiry learning uh, with a teacher that could manage the classroom than was in a class where they were doing explicit instruction with a teacher that couldn't manage the classroom because the learning 
outcomes in the inquiry classroom would be better. There's not that much of a difference between inquiry and explicit teaching as there is between a well-managed classroom and a poorly managed classroom. Um, and it's absolutely critical. And it's the thing that um, new teachers worry about. It's the thing that old teachers who've been teaching for 20 years like me still wake up in the night having dreams <laughs> about, you know, nightmares about. Um, it's a big deal. And it's, it's something that um, isn't, I don't know, I haven't done a systematic study, so I'll get shot down if I say this, but <laughs> my impression is from people uh, that I've t talked to, and it would be very hard to do a systematic study on, on this, and that's no coincidence. It's not, my impression is it's not particularly well dealt with in the majority of um, uh, people's uh, teacher mm. education. So, uh, and, it, and it is absolutely vital. That's it. Yeah. And I'll get shot down as well, Greg. But I, I, I agree with that. I don't think it's particularly well covered in, in, in teacher training. And um, I wonder just to kind of set the tone for this, because I, I think I'm right in saying that you believe it is to a certain extent teachable, some of these strategies to improve classroom management. Uh, before we dive into those, um, what mistakes have either you made in the past or that you've seen fellow colleagues make in the past when it comes to behavior and classroom management? Um, I've let things go. Uh, which I shouldn't, because once you start to let things go, it's very hard to 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 pull back on them. Uh, I've been inconsistent. I've shouted um, and lost my temper when I shouldn't have done. Um, th there's lots of different takes on this. Uh, it's it's e it's easy to want to um, set up two camps that broadly align with, say, a traditionalist approach versus a progressive approach, but mm. actually. No, to uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say this. This is probably where my views align the least with what you might think of as a, a typical traditionalist stance. Because uh, I know a lot of people who um, would agree with me about explicit instruction and things like that would would actually quite disagree with with some of my views on on classroom management. Um, for from a almost a moral standpoint as well. Like I, I'm trying to take an evidence-informed approach, um, but people would object to some of my evidence-informed suggestions on the basis of a moral stance. Could you just tell me what, just can you dig into that a little bit more, Greg? What, what, what would be the specific objections they'd have? Okay, so um, one of the reasons that um, classroom management isn't very well covered in my view is a lot of the relevant research comes from behaviorist um, psycho psychological research, and that's not very fashionable and it's not very popular mm. in the education faculties and, and more widely. And one of the very powerful findings is for positive reinforcement. So um, you, uh, I, it's very simple. Like I, the easiest thing is to just explain it. it. I think I mentioned this before, but the idea is. Um, say the kids on the back row uh, haven't done what haven't written the haven't started the starter activity for instance mm. and you want them to the the classic thing to do is go up to the kids on the back row and say oi kids start the starter activity <laughs> yeah and um, you've then set up a bit of a conflict because um, they might want to say well I don't want to do what you're telling me sort of thing you've also pointed out to the rest of the class that these kids on the back row who they possibly hadn't even seen if they're yes. on the front row are not doing what you want to do. So you're kind of chipping away at your own authority. <laughs> yeah. um, 
a more effective approach, and I've lived this, I've taught in some pretty tough schools in London. Well, one school I taught in for seven years in particular was a school facing challenging circumstances. It was quite a tough school, not the toughest, but pretty tough. Um, and I've used this strategy there and it worked very well. Instead of going to the kids on the back row, why don't you start the starter? You go to the kids in the middle row and say, great guys, excellent, that's mm. what I want to see, you all start the starter. Now, I find this entirely uncontroversial. The kids on the back row will then go, oh, and most of them will start the starter. And, and you haven't had to have a go at them. You haven't set yes. up that conflict. You've got a positive atmosphere. You've got a bit of momentum going. It's all fine. I find this entirely uncontroversial. I don't see any issue with it at all. But whenever I write about it, I had uh, Tom Burkhard, um, who often comments on my blog, and he was, he really objected to this. I wrote about it quite recently. He really object. People object to the idea of unearned praise. That kids should not be praised for something they should be doing. Anyway. Oh right, they should only I praise see. for think for when they've gone out of the ordinary and done something you know exceptional. But I don't even see this as praise. I just see it as like, oh, come on, guys, you know, it, you know, it's not like. I'm not standing the kids up at the front of the, the, the room and giving them medals yes. and saying, kids <laughs> yeah. on the front, on the middle of the row, we'll start the starter activity. But, yeah, so, and I'm quite happy with that. I find that it works. It's come through various sort of iterations of research, behaviorist psychology. I first learned about the idea through a program called Assertive Discipline, which is sort of one foot in research, one foot in um what Lee Cantor reckoned, who's the guy that came up with the program. But, um, yeah, and so I'm quite happy to, to suggest that as advice. But, yeah, a lot of people would have pretty strong objections to it. Jeez, that, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't see much controversial in that, Greg. That, that, that's fascinating, that. Um, just, just kind of frame what we're going to discuss in a second when we get into the practicalities. You, you draw the distinction between strategies, routines, and policies um, in this chapter. Can you just very briefly just explain what the difference between those three are, Greg, please? So a, a strategy is something you do in the moment. So that, that, like I've just explained about praising the kids on the middle road, positive reinforcement, excellent guys, you do my one, you do That's a strategy. Uh, a routine is something that we do every lesson. So maybe that's the starter activity. So the kids get used to the fact they come in, they open their books, they start the starter activity. That's a routine. Uh, and a policy is something that uh, if you're in charge of as a classroom teacher, you're in trouble because the policy should be <laughs> set by the school. Now, I have worked in a circumstance where I've had to construct my own policies, um, but that's because the school didn't have a functioning behavior policy. It's not a good position to be in. Got it. Fantastic. Well, what I loved about this chapter is you then kind of list a load of strategies, a load of routines and a load of policies and kind of really dig into the practical things. Because I think that's that's what teachers want. They, they, they want the theory, definitely, but they want what, what's the implication? What's the practical takeaway from this? So what I've done, I've just picked out a few of these that I found particularly interesting. I wonder if we could just dig deeper into them. So first is a strategy and that's what you describe as be assertive and stay calm. What, what do you mean by that greg um yeah it, it sounds pretty uh banal <laughs> when you when you say it like that like well who wouldn't want to be assertive and stay calm? It, it makes more sense in its distinction so the assertive discipline which i've just mentioned program and i've seen this uh, again in the uh, behavior management pocket guide that i forget who wrote that now very good little book if you ever get your hands on it um they draw the distinction um between passive um hostile and assertive so passive is oh please be quiet you know <laughs> oh, please please let me teach hostile is you know what bit of be quiet do you not understand yeah, you know yeah and um 
assertive is to, you know, I've asked you to um, be quiet now. I want to talk now. Thank you. Um, and it's that just that difference in tone, that fairly neutral. Um, I'm not, I'm not losing it, but you're going to do what I expect you to do. These are my mm. expectations. The, and um, trying to avoid it. So it's not really so much be assertive, although that's that was kind of the entire point of assertive discipline. That's where the name came from. But it was more to draw the contrast between being passive and being hostile. I think losing your temper and shouting at kids, I've never known that to be effective. Uh, um, and it's partly it's not effective because it's so entertaining for them. Um, yes. It's a, it's a great bit of gossip. Ah, uh, <laughs> oh, Mr. Ashman lost it, period two. Oh, did you see that? So you want to... I don't think it's because kids, you know, are too sensitive and too, um, um, what's fragile to cope with you shouting at them. I think it's quite the reverse. I just think it's just not a very effective strategy at all. So you want to try and be assertive. Um, and what was the other thing you said there? Be assertive and stay calm. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and I think. The thing, and I mentioned this in the book, the thing that uh, really helped me, you, one of the old teachers, I mean, this is, when you when you train, when I trained, and this is very, um, I'm, I'm sure that other people have been through a similar experience, you'd hear all this kind of ideal, idealistic stuff through your training, but then you go to the school and you'd see these grizzled old teachers in the <laughs> staff room who'd, who'd tell you actually what it, what you had to do, like what, <laughs> what you really had to do, not what they said. And... Uh, one of the mantras that they would say is don't take the kids home with you. And this was kind of a bit of like a, a double meaning joke. Like, obviously, yeah. don't take the kids home with you because you'll get yourself into an awful lot of uh, trouble <laughs> with the law. But also don't take the kids home with you on a psychological level because they don't deserve that time. You know, when you're sat at uh, home at night watching the telly or whatever, don't let them. Uh, impinge on your time and spoil that moment when you're thinking oh i should have said such and such to blah 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 oh i shouldn't have done it this way i should have dealt with it that way so i said don't take the kids home with you and uh one of the things i said in, in the book is that imagine the teacher as this little sort of puppet that you're controlling so and when the kids are being rude and horrible because they will be sometimes they're not being rude and horrible to you the person they're being rude and horrible to this puppet that you're controlling. And your job is to figure out what to get the puppet to do mm. to try and improve the situation. And all of that is about, in a professional way, not in a cold way, but in a professional way, just sort of distancing yourself a little bit emotionally um, so that you can make the right reason level-headed decisions rather than, you know, snap and shout or get really upset or whatever it is that emotionally you'll do if, if, if you let it sort of get in there i think that's brilliant advice greg and the bit i was kind of highlighting in the book when i was reading it from this particular bit was when you when when you describe it as the, the kids are reacting to the position of the teacher not to the, the person who is the teacher if, if that makes sense and i yeah i thought it, it's one of those things it's 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 it takes a while it took me a while to get my head around that when i was when i first started teaching and whenever behavior was was a big big issue in, in my lessons and that's a really important lesson to learn that. i think that's fantastic advice that greg and the, the other strategy i just wanted to touch upon was this i thought this was interesting as well uh, teach behavior don't assume and uh, what, what do you mean by that greg so, uh, well, there's lots of layers to this. I mean, teachers tend to be quite middle class and they have 
middle class. I mean, I, not all teachers, and but on on average, we're sort of more biased towards towards middle class. And sometimes we go and teach in quite uh, working class areas or areas where kids just come from a different background. And you can assume that your sensibilities will be shared by the kids. So you can ass- you'll assume that the kids know what rude is and what polite is. And yes. But you shouldn't assume any of these things. So, and and the other thing that you, that you don't realise as a teacher teaching your class <coughs> is that what you think is acceptable and unacceptable completely different to the person next door. The teacher next door completely different views about it. And and you'd be shocked if you went in there and saw what they were prepared to put up with from the kids or what they would shut down immediately from the kids. So there's no consistent. So for a kid from a different background to you walk into your class, it's almost impossible for them to know what what it is that you want them to do. Mm. It, it feels obvious to you as a teacher what they should do, but it's almost impossible for them to know. So rather than sort of beating up on them at the first opportunity when they don't meet those expectations, it's a lot better to just get out there at the start and say, look, this is what you're expected to do. This is how I want you to come in. This is uh, where I want you to sit. This is... How, you know, this is how, how I want you to write the date and title and whatever it is that you want them to do. Uh, this is how I want you to ask a question if you've got a question in class. This is how I want you to answer a question. I don't want anyone shouting out. One of the things that I say um, to kids, and I'll say it to, um, you know, year 12, very motivated kids. Um, so these are not kids that are going to pose any behaviour issue. But I will say to them, when someone answers in this classroom, everyone's listening. That, that's yeah. a given. You know, if someone's talking. If I'm talking, if the kids are with me, we're all listening. And nobody ever makes fun of what anyone else has said. No matter how good a relationship you think you have with them, we don't do that. We're not going to have that. Yes. Um, no, that's... And that's my, that's my expectation. Now, that might not be the expectation of the teacher down the hall, but I just need to make that very, very clear to the students so that we all know exactly where we stand. No, that's that's great, Greg. And it's again, it was the don't assume bit that I just particularly like just just assuming kids know how to yeah respond when somebody else is given an answer or, or or how to settle down with their work at the start of the lesson. Yeah, just teaching it explicitly, I thought was an absolutely key point there. And that feeds into the, the couple of routines I just wanted to focus on as well. Now, this sounds such an obvious one. And when I'm reading this, I thought, yeah, of course, of course. But I'll tell you what, if, if you don't get this right, I think it can just lead to an absolute torrent of problems and, and that's the routine that you describe as start academic learning from the beginning of the lesson and uh, why is that important greg and, and practically what does that look like in your lessons um so um you sometimes get advice from people that say things like i'll oh, find out what football clubs uh, the kids like in, in australia it's aussie rules football of course so. <laughs> so come in first lesson of the week monday morning have a bit of a chat about the football schools that's a really bad idea. Um, <laughs> you you want I often if any if I'm not going to have time for anything in my lesson, it's going to be that. If we can fit a bit of uh, that kind of discussion in, that's that that's okay. But we might do that towards the end of the lesson or somewhere else. But the signal is that my expectation when you're in my classroom is that we're doing maths. That's what it's a maths lesson. We're here to do maths. Or if it's physics, we're doing physics. We're here to do physics. You get your physics book out. We're going to do some physics. Um, and from the start of the lesson, that's the case. So um, 
I, I have a starter activity. Uh, if I can get into the class before the kids, which isn't always possible, but if I can, I'll have that projected up on the screen. And as the kids walk in, the expectation is they walk in, they sit down, they open their book, they do the starter activity. Um, it stops things bleeding into the lesson from outside. Now, yes, if you've got a year eight group, um, they just had uh, a fairly lively uh, break time and they come in. Uh, you don't want that break time to leak into your lesson and for things that started in that break time to finish in your lesson. So um, you just want a clean break, um, like a, you know, the role of pickled ginger and sushi, you know, between the two uh, bits of sushi, cleanse the palate, start <laughs> activity, off we go. And maximising learning time, um, that's, what, that's what we're here to do. I like that. That's the first uh, sushi-based analogy we've had on this podcast, Greg. I, I like that one. Um, the, the final routine I just wanted to focus on, because this wasn't one I'd considered before, and I thought this was brilliant, this. Uh, make attention visible. Well, what do you mean by that? And again, what I'm interested in is practically what does that look like? Um, so I, I don't actually have to, I have to say this is, this is something that I've... Um, learned from others and it's not something that i've necessarily embedded that well into my practice um you can get into all sorts of roundabout sort of arguments with with this and people will start asking you so if you say right well all the teachers all the students should look at the teacher when the teacher's talking um if a kid's not looking at you then then they could well still be paying attention to what you're saying but mm. if you said it as the expectation that to show me that you're paying attention um, you're going to be looking at me while I'm talking, then that's that's an indication if possibly if kids uh, are losing attention or you don't necessarily have to have a go at them, but you might want to figure out why that's happening, what what's taking place there. Um, and because it's visible then, you, you've got something to actually measure, whereas before it is visible, you, you can't know. Now, people then raise objections. I'll say what I've already said, oh, people can be listening to you and not looking at you. It's true. That's absolutely true. But what's the harm in looking at you? What's what's the damage that does? Oh, well, what if the kid is uh, autistic and has difficulty making contact, contact? Well, of course, if that was the case and you're their teacher and you knew about that, then you wouldn't insist on them looking at you. Like, this is not, mm. um, you know, let's not be silly here. Yes. But, um, but these little routines can be helpful. So the one I heard about that I particularly liked was um, Barry Smith, who's now at um, head of Great Yarmouth Academy in, uh, in the UK. Uh, but I think he was at Michaela when he talked about this. Um, when kids are reading, have a ruler and have them move the ruler down as they read each line in the thing that they're reading. And that way you can see whether they're keeping up. If their ruler's in the wrong place, they're probably not reading along in the way that you're expecting them to. And so a little routine like that can just just make it more... It's, it, it's Again, a lot of good teaching is about the teacher setting up mechanisms to provide feedback to them not to the students to the teacher so the teacher can then very quickly um deal with things before you know the it, it goes too far in the wrong direction very similar to what i was saying about the going through the problems in slow motion again mm. you're setting these little routines up to give yourself information as the teacher 
Yes. No, <laughs> fantastic that, Greg. Um, I wonder if I can ask you as well, because we're recording this in kind of the middle of uh, our summer holidays over here in the UK. Yeah. Um, and I'm, my next podcast I'm going to be releasing after this one is is another slice of advice, and it's going to be on first lessons, because I think there'll be a lot of new teachers and also a lot of teachers going back after the holidays who'll be thinking about those first few lessons with all their new classes. And I'm, I'm, what I'm interested from you, Greg, is what's your view on the first kind of few lessons with a new class, either at the start of the, a new year or perhaps you've inherited a class or maybe your colleague's gone off sick and you're taking over a class for a while. Should those first few lessons be more about establishing these routines and strategies than teaching the content? Or is it a case of diving straight into the content and kind of tackling these things as and when they come about, if, if that makes sense? Well, all the routines that I would want to establish are to aid in the teaching of the content. So I wouldn't establish a routine that wasn't about teaching content because that would be extraneous to our purposes. So the starter activity is about teaching content. The um, Any kind of tracking activity, it's about teaching content. Routines I would teach about questioning, again, are about teaching content. So... Um, the routines I would want to establish would are exactly the same things that I want to teach the content. So I'm not sure that really, is, for me, that there's a tension there. So I'll go in the first class and I'd expect to teach stuff, and I'd be setting up these routines to help me teach that stuff. Got it. Fantastic. Um, and last question on this, Greg, and this is because we've got to remember this is a book kind of primarily aimed at new teachers, but I think it's definitely relevant to teachers of all ages and experience. But you, but you make a really interesting point at the end of this chapter, and I'm going to quote you here. You say new teachers need to seek out a school that offers them support with behavior issues. This does not necessarily mean a school without behavior problems, but rather one that is clear and explicit about how behavior is to be managed. And I completely agree with that, Greg. My question to you is, how on earth does a teacher, particularly a new teacher, go about finding that kind of information out about a school? Uh, well, you have to ask at, at the interview, um, I suppose. And they could pull the wool over your eyes, um, mm. in which case get out fairly quick would be my <laughs> advice. But people don't generally tend to do that. People tend to wear their views about behaviour on their sleeve. It's almost... People who have the wrong views about behaviour management are often quite proud of their views on behaviour management, so it's not hard to to surface. Um, if a school tells you that they they don't have an overall behaviour policy, um, why would you want to manage kids' behaviour? What kind of monster wants to um, control students? Well, I'd be out the door fairly quickly <laughs> if they started in that one. Another warning sign would be if uh, they started saying things like, um, you know, um, kids will behave well uh, if the lesson is well planned and engaging and all that sort of stuff. That's a very bad sign. If, if the school leadership believe that, um, then that's that's dangerous because you'll go in there with your perfectly well planned, beautifully engaging lesson, and the kids won't let you even explain what that the lesson is in, involves or what it's about because they'll just eat you. So. Um, <laughs> No, those would be very bad signs. But I, I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be that hard to establish because I think people it's it's something people are fairly upfront about um, that they'll they'll I would be if they just get really dismissive of the question. If you ask a question about behavior management, classroom management, and they're just really dismissive of the question, like why would you be asking that sort of thing? Um, 
then, yeah, I would say alarm bells should start ringing. It's, it's fascinating that because I know certainly when I've applied for jobs, I've 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 looked at the results of the school. You you get a feeling of the facilities, all this kind of stuff, whether they've got good computers, whether kids have iPads, all this kind of thing. But it's, it's certainly the behaviour's never been at the forefront of my mind. It's always been something I've discovered within the kind of first couple of weeks or the first term. And I think yeah, it's absolutely brilliant advice to make that explicit for you as a teacher looking for a new school to try and figure out what's going on there. And as you say you've put this kind of at the very heart of your book the very start of the book because for you it's more important than anything else so yeah it's a wonderful chapter in the book like greg and yeah absolutely brilliant stuff thank um, you i want to i want to turn now if it's all right to, to chapter four which is on motivation because yeah. i'm flipping obsessed with motivation as well and we i've interviewed nick rose on, on the podcast and we, we spoke a fair bit about motivation but i thought you had a really interesting take on it and well, one of the first things you say in this chapter is and again i'll quote you here you say we need to construct our thinking about motivation it's an obvious point but we should seek to motivate students about the thing that we want them to learn and not about uh, something else now you say it's an obvious point but i think it's an absolutely crucial point greg so what, what do you mean by that specifically motivate students about the things we want them to learn and not about something else um so uh others have made this point possibly uh slightly more uh eruditely than me but it links <laughs> it links a lot as well to th what i talk about in planning when i'm talking about planning for learning rather than planning for an activity the two the two things are very similar so for instance you might think oh we're learning about the uh, english civil war in history we'll learn about the english civil war in history um and you're having a, one of these uh, pretty poor department meetings that you described earlier and we're all <laughs> sharing best practice and i know We'll take kids outside and we'll get them to do a mock uh, battle, civil war battle. They'll find it really <laughs> engaging. Well, you say to kids, right, we're going to go outside because we're going to have a mock battle. You will motivate them. Those kids will be motivated. They'll be very interested in going outside and having a mock battle. What they're not going to learn is any history of the civil war. Um, so why are you doing that? What you want to do is you want if you if you're going to motivate them motivating them in a way that is useful and meaningful if if it is even possible to do like if it is even possible for an outside agent to motivate another person about something um then what you want to motivate them about is learning about the civil war because that's the thing that you want them to learn about not about going out on the field and sort of doing a mock battle with no authentic equipment or anything that you could possibly they'll probably end up throwing balls of paper at each other or something and kids will go home and i thought oh, we had a great history lesson today we went out in the field and we threw balls of paper at each other and the parents will go oh, what are you learning about i don't know but it was really good fun so and is he I'll tell you what, Greg, it really got me thinking this. I talk about in my book about a, a terrible lesson I taught with fractions involving Swiss rolls that all kids remember four yeah, years later. Yeah, and but I tell you, I've had a lot of kickback about it because... I'll tell you what, my year 11, my, they were year 7s at the time, but they flipping loved that lesson. And I reckon yeah. that bought me quite 
quite a good positive relationship with my class and I know you mentioned you you, you quite um, you make it quite clear about the importance of relationships between teachers and students and Dylan William whenever he's been on the show twice now he's he's emphasized relationships so is there a role for those kind of lessons as almost kind of a one-off where you kind of say right okay the kids aren't going to learn anything here but they're going to have a good time and this is actually going to buy me uh, the kind of seeds of a good relationship that then is going to I'm going to reap the fruit of this for, for potentially years to come. So I, I almost kind of take the achievement and academic hit in the short term to reap the long term benefits. Is there any validity in that at all? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't have a problem with that at all. I, I have a problem with people telling me that going out in the field and throwing paper balls at each other is the best way to learn. <laughs> right. But if you're not claiming that it's the best way to learn history, that if you're claiming that it's fulfilling some other objective, then why not? I mean, it, it could well do that. One thing you might want to consider, however, um, I used to have a reward system with my middle school uh, science classes uh, back in the UK um, you know, um, a few years ago now. And I used to call it tea time. And the tea stood for tangential um and uh, with one of my classes we actually sat around uh, i don't know whether you get away with this now but we brewed cups of tea and we actually nice. sat around and drank these cups of tea and the idea was that if they got so many i don't know whether it's points or whatever it was uh they could cash it in for a tea time and this tea time basically they could ask me any science question they liked now, I might rule it out of order. You know, you can imagine some of the sort of questions. <laughs> um, but I might, you know, I had the right to rule it out of order. But um, I know I could also say, look, I don't necessarily know the answer, but I can riff around it a little bit for mm. a while and say these are the sort of things that are useful. Uh, and sometimes I could answer the question. A lot of the questions were, were would repeat. So, you know, do aliens exist and things like that. And I, as a science teacher, I had quite a lot to say on those sorts of topics. But the beauty of that is I didn't think the kids are going to learn a lot. This was The objective was to sort of reward them and make them feel positive. And yes, we've achieved something. We've, it's worthwhile um, conforming to Mr. Ashman's rules because, you know, if we do so, then you get this reward. But I'd rewarded them with science. So yes. there's a science lesson, and the reward was science. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that. Um, so... I don't know where your Swiss role. I, I remember your Swiss role lesson. I don't really know where, the, where that would sit. Whether, whether there is enough maths in there for us to claim that you were rewarding them with maths, I don't know. <laughs> but um, you know, I think it, it's worth thinking along those lines if you're going to do that. And and I would have the conversation sometimes with kids about the football, or I've got kids that get involved in the school play, and I'll say, "Oh, can see the play. Well done. Thought it was excellent." It, it, you don't have to have I, I th one of the th one of the big misnomers I think about uh, well managed uh, classrooms. One of the sorry the big misunderstandings well managed classrooms actually allow you to have these nice mm. relationships with kids and talk about their performance in the school play and all that sort of stuff. They create the space for it, so they're actually good for generating good relationships. People think that it's all about, you know, whacking the ruler on the desk at the front and telling everyone to shut up. Well, that would be awful. Like, you, you'll get nowhere with that. I mean, most, most um, you know, inner city kids will just tell you where to go if you try doing that. <laughs> but if, if you have these structured, well-thought-out, uh, reasoned routines, rules, procedures, and because the routines become automatic, 
and no one has to think about them. It's just what we do. We go and learn sessions classes. And no, so no, I don't have to nag them because it's just what they do. You just create the space then that if you do want to um, build relationships in this way or talk to individual kids about, uh, you know, what, why their homework slipped off in the last couple of months, what's, what's going on there. And then they'll disclose something to you that you really didn't want to know, but how did it come? Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're the person they trust. All that happens, but it happens because you've created this nurturing, supportive, structured environment that creates the space uh, for those relationships to develop. That's a, a really interesting point. Yeah, very, very important, Greg, that. Um, the other thing I wanted to just talk about on motivating students is, again, something I'm a little obsessed about, and that, that's the idea of giving students choice and the idea that more choice is motivating. Now, you reference a paper that I'm a massive fan of. I think it's by Clark. Um, the problems yeah. with student choice is students often choose the, the method and mode of instruction that's least effective for their learning. But then we do have research and literature that choice can be motivating. So I wonder, have you found any practical ways of, of making students uh, have choice? choice or making students choice work within your lessons no <laughs> that was a brief one so no it's and is that because of what's the they choose that, the wrong right? things if you give them a choice like if you if the kid that needs to work hard because they're not particularly motivated will choose to do less work like it it's not <laughs> you know if oh kids would you like to write an essay or would you like to make a poster okay so the kids that really need to be writing the essay will be making a poster and the, and the kids that you know brilliant writers already maybe you need to think about um the, the you know drawing diagrams the diagrams are not so hot oh they'll be writing an essay yes. so you, people do the things that they're already good at yeah and they try and avoid the things that they don't think they're so good at Whereas what you actually want them to do is the reverse of that. So, no, I, I've never seen a way. I, I, I know choice is motivating, but again, motivating about what? So, mm. yeah, I'll give you a choice. Um, um, oh, I'm now really motivated to make a poster. Great. But you don't need to make a poster. You need to write an essay. So, yes, it's motivating, but about what? So I've never seen a way of really sort of harnessing the power of, of student choice, no. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's an obsession. I, I assume it's the same in Australia as it is in the UK with, with wanting kids to be independent learners. And we've got to get our kids independent and so on. And one way of, of kind of doing that is, is to is be seen to be giving kids choice because we're, we're kind of encouraging them to be independent. I guess if we if we want kids to be independent learners, Greg, and we want them when they're at home to make the right choices about what topics they revise and how they revise, how can we get them to that point when we're not giving them choice within lessons, if, if that makes sense? How do we facilitate this independence? Um, well, I'm not sure that you can, really. Um, I, I think that if once you know a lot, once you're more re of a relative expert in an area, um, then you be, then you can you get the sort of self-sustaining uh, ability. I don't think that. I, I don't think that it's in conflict. If you say, right, uh, you're going to learn a whole load of biology. I'm not going to give you any choice. This is, the, but you've actually opted into the course in the first place for some reason because you've chosen to do biology at year 12 or in the UK, you've chosen to do it at A level. But you've opted in, so that was your choice. Choices are over now. 
uh, you're going to do this, you're going to learn this, blah, 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 blah. I think that's actually the best preparation for later going on to university and working more independently and then maybe going on and doing a PhD. I don't think that that holds you back. This idea that people have that kids get used to being spoon-fed um, mm. and not not don't get used to being independent and so they've got to sort of practice being independent before they're ready to be independent, before they know enough to be able to do the research and know what to look up for themselves. I, I'm not aware of a huge amount of imp- evidence. It's, it kind of has a kind of truthy ring to it. We've got to get these kids <laughs> being independent. But I'm not sure that there's a, a huge amount of evidence for that. I think it's much more about the no- novice to expert continuum. And I think that uh, if I was going, like, I might be very good working independently on my PhD in cognitive load theory. I already know a lot about it. I'm quite motivated. Um, I've, I've done quite a bit of research. Uh, it's, it's something I've picked out for myself. But if I, you know, when I had, when I went to antenatal classes uh, a few years ago now, um, I, I needed to, do, I needed explicit instruction. I need to be sat down and told. And it, it's not because that I'm suddenly an independent learner yes. and in one environment, and then I'm, I'm not an independent learner. Like I've sort of reverted or something. It's they're just different things, and I'm somewhere else on the expert novice continuum in those two different areas. But yeah, very, very interesting, Greg. Um, I'll tell you the other thing that struck me about this chapter for motivating, and I thought this was a fascinating point. Um, you draw an important distinction, well, I, I think it's important anyway, between kind of quiz games and those games that have a, a narrative to them. And the reason I thought this was interesting is because you often hear people say, right, games are mo- computer games are motivating to kids in a way that school isn't and so on, and school needs to be more game-based and so on. So there's a danger when I hear things like that to think, right, now that's a load of nonsense, so let's keep kind of games out of the classroom. But then you make the point that actually quiz games have this kind of academic content behind them that almost kind of fits back into what you were saying um, earlier when you're talking about motivation, motivating the kids for, for the right reasons about the actual subject. So I wonder if you can just talk a little bit more about that. And do, and you, you also mentioned this thing. I don't think this has hit the UK, you know, this fling the teacher. I had oh, to Google this. I had to Google this. So can you just t- t- tell us a little bit about that distinction Look, between quiz games and those with a narrative and how you make use of that if you do in your lessons? Um, I don't use games a huge amount these days, um, but I did. Uh, I used to use, and I used to use Fling the Teacher in the UK. It's, uh, I don't even know whether the website's still going. Andrew Field, um, he, he used to run the Active History, was it Active History website? But he got into um, Flash, coding in Flash, and he created all these games. And, and one of them, there's several of them. There's a, a penalty shootout game and there's a basketball game. One of them's called Fling the Teacher, and it's it's a bit like the um, the idea of uh, who wants to be a millionaire. So you've got to build this big catapult, and once you build the catapult, you fling the teacher through the air. Um, and to build the catapult, you have to answer questions correctly, and there are multiple choice questions. And in who like in who wants to be a millionaire, you can phone a friend who's just like this animated expert. Um, you can um, what's it? you can do a vote, you know, and they'll the, the audience, there isn't one, but the audience will vote and you'll get these bar charts and the different answers. and You can remove two wrong answers. And so you've got these lifelines and all this. But the thing is, the gameplay is very incidental. So most of the time, if you did a sort of time motion uh, survey of someone playing this thing, fling the teacher, most of the time they would be staring at a question, trying mm. to figure out the answer. Only in between questions would a little bit be put on the trebuchet and then next question. 
And so most of the time they're thinking about the thing you want them to think about. So I used to, uh, when I was teaching um, in the UK, physics A-level and GCSE science and things like that, I'd put these, uh, they're not great for maths because it was uh, one of these ASCII only type editors. So you can only put words and you can't put symbols in. Um, so it, it, it could look a bit clunky if you tried to start doing anything too mathematical. But you could put these sort of quiz questions in and... And you needed about uh, 40 so that you didn't get the same questions occurring uh, yes. every single time. So the kids would just learn the answers otherwise. And I, what I did sneakily is I would put in slight variations of the same question. So if the kid learned the answer, and then they, <laughs> the next time it came up, they think it's the same question, but it's not. It's slightly different. So, um, so they always had to think. And they used to be quite good little revision activities. Now, um, I'm not saying it's the best revision activity. Um, quizzing, self-testing is pretty good. And... Um, we know that there's a lot of research on that. And it's just the kind of fun way of doing a bit of quizzing, a little bit of self-testing. So it seemed to work. The, the trouble with games more generally is when the time is divided up in a different way and you spend more time thinking about the gameplay, thinking about where you're going to collect the next token and what you've got to yes. do with the token or whatever it is, than the actual content you're supposed to be thinking about. Um, and I think that's where they go wrong because they can be very motivating and kids can spend ages playing them, but they just don't learn anything. Yes. F- fascinating. And f- final question on motivation, Greg, and uh, it's my, my favourite one to ask because I, I still don't have a perfect answer to this and I'm wondering what yours is. And whenever a kid asks you, when will I ever need this or when, when will I ever use this in real life? Well, what do you say to them these days, Greg? Uh, well, you, you probably won't. Um <laughs> What do you think you're here for? Like the, you can point to any single thing in any school curriculum and say, well, you could live perfectly fine without knowing that. Um, say today, say today you missed the lesson where um, the teacher explains what a euphemism is. Okay, you, you can survive without knowing what a euphemism is. Uh, you, if you encounter it later in life, you might be able to look it up. No harm done there. You don't need to know anything. There's a good uh, XKCD cartoon about algebra. Um, it's called Forgot Algebra. Um, and you might want to, it's pretty good. It's like these people are bumping to their teacher, I, th- I think it's a supermarket or somewhere, a few years later and said, yeah, I've forgotten everything I ever knew about algebra and it doesn't matter. I've never needed to solve anything for X any time since. And the caption underneath says, um, it's amazing that... People always say this about algebra when you can make exactly the same argument about music or history or Mm. anything else. And part of the problem I think we have in maths is we sell it early to kids on its utility. We say, oh, kids, oh, you've got to learn maths because when you go to the supermarket, you want to know you've got the right change, all this sort of stuff. And so kids imbibe this idea that maths is inherently useful. And then when we start teaching them, you know, integration or uh, mm. no, be less, <laughs> maybe not that, then probably won't, haven't got that far. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Y equals MX plus C or, you know, how, how to you, you, uh, co-interior angles or something. They'll say, yeah, well, but when, when will we need this at the supermarket? And we've trained them to think that way about maths. And then we're sort of withdrawing it. The, the curriculum has to be seen in total. It has to be seen in terms of what we expect educated people to know and to know about. The purpose of a curriculum is it's an insurance policy against the future. Despite what people on blogs, silly blogs, um, 
uh, will say about, you know, the, well, in the future, there'll be just 59% of jobs won't exist and all this sort of stuff. Nobody knows what the future is going to be like. Nobody knows. We can see some trends, but no one really knows. And our best guide to the stuff that people are going to find useful in their careers in the future is the stuff that people have found useful in the past. And the stuff that people have found useful in the past tends to be stuff that's persisted and hung around. Mm. And funnily enough, that's the stuff that ends up in the school curriculum. So it's not that every last thing that you learn at school is going to have some direct utility in your everyday life. If if people are thinking about school in that way, they're thinking about it wrong. That's not the the purpose of it. The purpose is to create well-rounded, educated individuals who can take pleasure in their education and the access it provides them to the finer things in life. Uh, de democratic participants who can pick up a quality newspaper, really understand what it's on about, because you actually need a lot of knowledge, a lot of background knowledge to be able to read an article in, say, the New York Times or on the BBC website and, that, and understand what's what it's talking about, because a lot is left unsaid there. They don't every time there's an article about Israel Palestine, they they don't give you an explainer on the whole um, conflict in the Middle East from you know scratch. They just assume you know about that stuff. So the school curriculum is is about um, making sure that individuals have that breadth, that broad knowledge, so that they can engage in the world. It's not about you know teaching you something that's going to help you work out your change at the supermarket you just use <laughs> a calculator on your phone if that's all you're interested in <laughs> fantastic greg and um, if it's all right with you i'm conscious of time here i'd just yeah. like to ask you five more questions if that's all right i'm going to pick kind of my favorite question from each of the uh, remaining chapters i wanted to focus on if, if that's yeah. okay with you that's um, all good. i wanted to I wanted to start with a kind of amalgamation of uh, chapters five and six, which are on kind of explicit teaching and its alternatives. Now, this is something that we covered a lot in our in our first interview when we spoke. What I'm what I'm particularly interested, though, Greg, um, is that you're very careful. And I think this is really important. This you make the point that alternatives to explicit teaching certainly have their place. And we know from cognitive load theory, the expert reversal effect, that at some point, um, the kind of worked example and teacher guided instruction is, is less effective the more expert you get within a subject. So what I'm interested in, Greg, is which of those alternatives to explicit teaching do you yourself make use of within your lessons? And what are the some of what are some of the considerations that you make when deciding what to use? Um, well, it depends what you mean by explicit teaching uh, as well, because explicit teaching is a it, 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 it. Sometimes when you say explicit teaching, we mean the interactive lecture part of a lesson, and that's all we mean. But when I talk about explicit teaching, I'm, I tend to uh, uh, map it onto Rosenstein's principles of instruction. And that goes all the way from interactive sort of whole class teaching through guiding practice, through independent practice and so on. And in that sense, I, I probably explicit teaching is pretty much all I do, really, because we get to a point where um, I've guided the practice and the kids are working independently towards the you know last few weeks of a year 12 course. Um, I won't I won't sort of stand at the class at the front of the class and talk very much at all the kids will be working on problems they'll often be with my guidance yeah i said choice earlier i didn't use any of it but with my guidance they'll be identifying problems that they specifically mm. need to work on because they've got a weakness in a particular area 
And it'll only be when a kid throws me a question that I can't answer very easily without, you know, drawing a diagram or something that I'll go to the front of the room and start drawing a diagram. And, it's, and then I'll say, actually, everyone listen to this. This is an important point. I'm not sure I stressed it before. And then I'll do a little bit of explicit um, whole class teaching. But to me, even though I'm sort of sat at the front wandering around and, and not leading the lesson, it's mm. also part of the arc of explicit teaching. We're just at a different stage there. And it all would sit under uh, Rosenshine's uh, principles. But you've you got to bear in mind that I'm talking there about uh, an exam classes, pretty motivated exam classes. Um, if I were teaching uh, in a different area, then I would be making, like sometimes I would be making choices and I'd want those choices there in the curriculum. I'm, I don't mind someone saying, you know, we're going to sacrifice the efficiency of the learning here for some other objective. We want the kids to uh, have some fun or we want them to uh, engage with an outside speaker um, because we just we want them to you know know what science careers are like or whatever. I don't have a problem with any of that, provided that we're not pretending that it's a more effective form of teaching. Provided we're quite explicit that the objective is something else, then I don't see that there's a problem with it. The problem arises when we say, oh, this this afternoon that we're going to spend making nets and making shapes and and all that sort of stuff and cutting things out and sticking them together with sellotape this is really effective math teaching i think that's i don't think that's a, the right thing to say but if if we if we're doing it for some other purpose whatever that is and i can't anticipate what those all might be but there's a lot of purposes going on in a in a busy school then that's 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 quite reasonable i think got it fantastic um planning lessons is something that again we de we delve deep into when we when we first spoke and you have a fantastic chapter on it chapter seven and some of the things we're not going to speak about now is that you like me are a fan of planning lessons on powerpoint which again i think i think is is fascinating and, and readers will really enjoy that but i want to be um i want to just kind of dive into what kind of there's a danger it's a math specific question but i reckon this has got implications for other subjects as well greg and you say and i'm going to quote you again here the best piece of lesson planning advice i can give to any aspiring maths teacher is to first attempt all of the questions yourself now when i read that i was nodding my head because i've i've done lessons when i haven't done that and it's been a disaster so what what in your experience what happens when teachers don't do that and why do you say why do you claim that's the kind of best piece of advice for an aspiring maths teacher um, OK, so if you don't do that, uh, you risk messing it up in front of the kids. If you're if you're a part of the furniture, if you've been there for 30 years, if there's a, a wing of the school named after you, then you can probably get away <laughs> with that. But if you're rocking up new to take a class that are all looking at you sideways, wondering whether you're going to be any good or not. And the first thing you do is stuff up a question in front of them. It's not a good look. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that when you're solving a question in front of a class, that's a lot different to solving it in your office or at your desk mm. at home because you're, your cognitive load is much higher. So first start, you, it's stressful, uh, if, uh, particularly if things are going wrong and you're not getting it right, you're going to get quite stressed about this. And often the maths that we're teaching is not straightforward, um, particularly at the higher ends. It's the sort of thing that can trip people up. Um, and but not only that, you've got two thought processes going on. You're not just solving the problem. You're solving the problem 
and trying to in real time explain to the kids how you were solving mm. the problem. So there's a lot more going on <coughs> in working memory than if you were just sat there quietly on your own solving the problem. So you don't want to be doing those two things simultaneously. You want to solve the problem in advance so that when you're in front of the class, your attention can be devoted to explaining what you're doing. Um, classic things happen. So, for instance, say you've got two simultaneous equations. I might have mentioned this last time, but it's, I'll, I'll repeat myself. Two simultaneous equations. Uh, you go through, you've got, you've got to find an A and a B term. You go through, you solve it. You, a equals three. You're finished. Okay. Mm. Well, actually, you haven't said what B is because you, you've run out of that, that. Remembering to solve for B is the thing that dropped out of your working memory yes. because you had so many things to think about. Now, um, what, one way around that, of course, is for the next slide in your PowerPoint to have the work solution with A and B. Oh, look, guys, look what I did. It's silly me. I forgot to solve for B. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but then that can help as well. So those are little crutches. But the other thing, though, I often say to new teachers as well, new teachers um, – have a bit of an empathy gap. They, they, maths teachers become maths teachers usually because they're pretty good at maths. And mm. so they find it hard to picture the, the, the torment that the students are going through trying to get their heads <laughs> around this maths. Um, and one strategy I give ju just to sort of help them with find, find, um, hone their explanations is I say, look, write down a work solution to this problem, but uh, have a big space in between each line and then put us uh, an additional step in in each of those spaces because you're you're going to be jumping um, from one obvious thing to another obvious thing and you're going to lose kids because they're going to go well how do you get from there to there because it's not obvious to them or that's obvious to you by going through this discipline of writing down the lines in between the lines and sometimes even lines in between the lines in between the lines you you can sort of break it down to the extent that you you might need to be able to do to explain it to the kids and then that's a, a useful thing that you can do when you're trying these questions beforehand rather than trying to work that all through and explain all that in real time that's a really nice strategy that greg i've not heard of that before that's 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 fascinating that and i just just um, just on that point as well um, a mistake i've made in the past and this feeds back to a distinction you make in that same chapter between um activity-based planning and and kind of planning actual more effective planning is i've i've been guilty and i feel bad admitting this but i might as well is i'll um if i'm pushed for time i'll go on tez and i'll try and find a good set of questions or i'll go on a classic and i remember this very well there's a, a website i don't know if you're aware of it dr frost maths a guy a maths teacher called jamie frost who i interviewed on this podcast amazing website he's got powerpoints and everything but they're flipping hard i've never seen as tricky <laughs> questions because he teaches in a really high performing independent school yeah so i've made i've made the mistake in the past of teaching year 11s very low confidence year 11s y equals mx plus c i've grabbed what allegedly is a year eight uh, powerpoint office dr frost maths website i've banged this beautiful set of questions up and the jump between the questions is just ridiculous like they're going to implicit equations very very quickly there's negatives fractions floating around and because i haven't sat down and gone through the questions myself um, just because I thought, well, I know how to do this, so I'll be able to solve it. So I wasn't worried about not being able to solve the problems, but by, by not actually doing them myself, I haven't been able to check the progression, the jumps, and so on. And then the damage has been done because the kids are like, well, I can't do question three, sir. And then I have to say, oh, well, don't worry about that. Well, you know, I'll, I'll come up with some other questions. Oh, well, why can't we do question three? And, it, and it's just a nightmare. So I think as an additional reason, as well as checking you can do them, just checking that questions are 
you know definitely suitable for the kids and there's no subtleties or weird solutions in there because it can be really problematic and we both know kids confidence in maths can be so fragile and it all it takes is a rogue question to knock them and you can be playing catch up for a long time trying to get it back and absolutely if that makes sense. And, your, and your problem there of course is that you're designing the lesson from scratch which yes. means that you that's why you haven't gone through all the questions whereas if you didn't have to design that lesson, if the lesson already existed, then ha- instead of spending your time trying to put it together and grab stuff off the internet, you could spend your time doing the questions. Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's a nice callback to our previous discussion about kind of joint planning and centrally planned lessons. That's absolutely superb, Greg. Well, last few questions. I want to jump to chapter eight now, which is on assessment and feedback. And I mean, this is a rabbit hole that if we jump down, we could be chatting for hours here. But I just want your take on this. And a quote that you say in the book is one way that many teachers try to deal with uh, the problem of assessment and feedback is by writing lots of feedback at the end of a piece of work. It's unfortunate that so many teachers and school leaders have conflated the notion of providing feedback with writing comments in this way. Now, this is a definite problem, Greg, and it, it sucks up so many hours of a teacher's time. So what I'm interested in is, is, is bearing in mind all that you've read um, and your vast experience, what, like we can take maths or science, whichever way you want to interpret it, what, what does your marking and feedback process look like on a week-to-week basis, let's say? Well, I don't write comments. I don't take books up and then write comments in them um, because that's really inefficient. Um, it's... It's as if you're a football coach and um, you go to football training and you watch uh, actually you watch everyone play um, a game, say, and then at the end of the session you don't say anything to any of them. Then at the end of the session you write them all a letter, an individual letter, and that letter um, is very similar uh, for the uh, the different players because the, the, they've all got to work on fairly similar things. Yes. But you're writing a, handwriting them in it all an individual letter in it. It's just a desperately inefficient way of doing anything. Um, I think we do it because we think we're supposed to do it, and maybe parents expect it to to some extent. I don't know. Um, With maths, uh, when I set homework, I give kids the answers, the numerical answers, um, and then I insist on seeing word solutions so that they can't just have... They can't just write down the numerical answers that I've already given them. I've got to see the word (laughs) solution. And then I can just check that very quickly at the start of every lesson, whether they've done it or not. And then I say, I write, I do draw a box up on the board and I say, any questions that you found tricky, write those questions in that box. And then um, they'll write question four. And I'll think, how on earth have they got stuck in question four? I taught that beautifully. I, I gave an example <laughs> that was exactly right. And if they hadn't written the four up in that box, I'd have assumed that yes. they were fine with it. But they've written four up. And now I've got to spend some time at the start of the lesson explaining how to do question four. And that's a really good discipline for me because the most important thing in all of this is the feedback to me, the teacher, mm. uh, on my teaching. If I think I've taught the, the stuff they need for question four beautifully and they're coming back the next lesson and saying, can't do question four, that's something for me to reflect upon. And then the feedback I'm giving them, uh, if it's you, usually if one kid struggles with question four, two thirds of the class struggle with question four. So I'll say, look, if you didn't struggle with question four, you can start the exercise. But um, if you did struggle with question four, I'm going to go through this. Listen. Sometimes I'll say, oh, it's an interesting problem. This actually everyone listen, even if you got it right, because there's a a particular way that I want to talk this through. And uh, I'll do a bit of reteaching. And then I'm I'm explaining it to all of them. 
I can clarify any questions that they may have. It's efficient. I'm not writing them all a letter. Um, and it's just a much better way of providing the feedback. Um, we really have to get away from this writing the comment at the end. I mean, it doesn't make any sense in maths. Like, what are you going to write at the end of <laughs> good? Well done. Nice, nice to see all the work solutions, but you didn't write some work solutions. So next time, try and write work solutions for all of them. I mean, what, what can you write that's meaningful? And we'll, they'll read it. It's like, uh, I think Dylan Williams described it as an attempt at one-to-one tuition that isn't always received. Yes. Um, <coughs> so <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, but it's an absolute tragedy that, that that's what people think feedback is. Um, because it's, are you... You mentioned that, I mean, I fully agree with you here, Greg, and you, you mentioned that this year you're teaching, I think it was grade 12 students. Would this be something that you do with younger kids as well? Do you think this kind of idea of giving them the numerical solutions w works with the younger kids as well? Um, m maybe. Um, with When I've taught, um, so I taught year six a few years ago, and um, what I tended to do with them is they do the homework, they bring it in, and then I'd give them the numerical set, solutions uh, at the yes. start of the next lesson, and they'd self-correct, and then I'd say, oh, which one did we all get, and what was tricky? And But um, no, none of this taking all the books in and, you know, carry bags full of books and writing banal. <laughs> I, I've never really seen the point in that. I don't, I don't think I don't, I don't think there's any value in it, really. That's very, very interesting. That's fascinating, Greg. Well, final two questions from me. Um, this one's from the last chapter in the book, which I thought was a lovely chapter entitled To Be a Teacher. Because we know, having both taught for quite a few years now, it can be the best job in the world, but it can be the flipping worst job in the world. Um, there's some real tough times for them for many different reasons, and not just behaviour that we've we've spoke about, but stuff going on in kids' personal lives, um, bad exam results, a whole host of things can make this a really, really tough job at times. And then you include the workload and, and all sorts of things and the pressures and so on. So I wonder, Greg, what 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 the kind of things that over the years or, or even now kind of get you through the tough times that inevitably happen when you're a teacher well what are the, some of the things that, that you do to kind of get yourself through them well i think uh, you have to stay grounded um and you have to have things outside of teaching um you know i've got a, a family who um i love very much and who i like spending time with um and that takes me out of the teaching world uh, i think that's quite important to have it things else other things that are going on but I, I still find teaching hugely rewarding um when you explain something to a kid and they understand it and say it's one of say it's why the moon orbits the earth for instance and you've explained this to a year eight kid and they understand it really well now they understand it about as well as um newton did or maybe without the maths <laughs> but they've got the idea that it's the same gravity that's pulling um an apple and then you think well most people that have ever lived, and most people alive today, don't actually understand this thing. And this, I've just explained it to this year eight kid. I, it's just, I think it's, it's the power of knowledge. It's that, um, I, I, it's hard to put into words, but passing on that understanding of the world, that way of looking at the world, that way of looking at things uh, differently, I just find it hugely, hugely rewarding and. Since I started doing it, I started doing it in Africa in 1997. Um, 
and I did it. I thought I, well, I thought teaching was going to be a bit of a backup plan. I thought I was going to end up um, doing something else with my life, and it would just mean I'd never have to uh, claim unemployment benefit because I could always do a bit of supply <laughs> teaching. But as soon as I started doing it, I just never looked back. It was the thing that I always wanted to do. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know it's a vocation and and you've got to have a vocation in order to be a teacher. It's well, there's a lot of drudge work and there's times I've considered leaving teaching and wondered whether you know I'd have been better off going into banking or something like that. Um, so it's not <laughs> this heroic martyr thing, but I think there is something very special about explaining things to kids and kids understanding things that they never understood before. And, being able to see the world in a different way. That's the thing about teaching itself that I think keeps me there. That's a br- brilliant answer. And the, the final question from me, Greg, just a bit of a reflection. We're going to end on a slightly controversial note, possibly. And that's, I wonder, and I, I thought this when I, when I wrote my book, is it possible to kind of almost, and I don't know if this is the right phrase, but kind of fast track teachers to expertise with, with books like yours? Or is there a necessity to, for teachers to have to actually make the mistakes and gather up their own personal bank of experiences? Uh, I don't think there's a fast track to anything, really. Um, what, we, what we can do is set teachers down the first few steps of the right track, uh, rather than maybe one that sends you into a forest full of monsters or you know like there's flying monkeys <laughs> from the wizard of oz or something <laughs> so I, I think we can send people off in the right direction um but that's about all we can do but that's better than not doing anything that's right fantastic well greg this has been the second time i've been lucky enough to interview you now hopefully it won't be the last because I, I always learn so much from speaking to you and i know listeners do um and please keep doing what you're doing writing your blog and um, engaging with people on twitter because it's, it's it's so important for the profession and greg just thank you for taking the time to speak to me today thank you it's been a pleasure thanks for having me on There you have it. There was my second interview with Greg Ashman. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Genuinely, I wasn't making this up when I said it at the start. I really think this is as good, if not better, than our first conversation. And that was an absolute game changer for me. And I know it was too for many other listeners. It really introduced me to the intricacies, practicalities and benefits of cognitive load theory. And I'll forever be grateful for Greg for for opening my eyes to that wonderful world. There really has been no turning back from me since that moment. So I was a bit kind of nervous, I guess is the the word, apprehensive of getting Greg back on. It's always dodgy trying to get a sequel going, trying to recreate that magic. But as hopefully I've shown when Chris Bolton's revisited, Danny Quinn's been been on twice, Dylan Williams been on twice, that these people have just so much to offer. So I, I really hope you enjoyed that one. Um, takeaways, flipping out where to begin. Um, I'm going to begin with, with where Greg be, begins his book and that's on behaviour. Um, I thought it was fascinating, hey, when Greg said that he would rather his child be in a classroom that is done... Uh, 
taught by using inquiry methods, but where there's good behavior, then explicit instruction where there's bad behavior. And this is coming from one of the, the world's leading proponents of explicit instruction. I, I thought that was a really important point to make, that, that behavior is, is the key to everything, really. If, if there's bad behavior, then the teacher simply can't get their message across. They, they can't use formative assessment strategies or anything like that. Kids can't even hear what's going on. They, they, there's no silence. There's no kind of productive working atmosphere or anything like that. So all worries about flipping working memory capacity and expertise reversal effect and split attention just goes out the window if the classroom isn't a stable, positive learning environment. I thought that was that was absolutely fascinating. And I love the chapter. I really do love it on behavior because it's so practical. And um, I like the idea that behavior is teachable and we shouldn't assume things. I made that mistake for years, you know. I assumed that kids knew how to behave. <laughs> oh, flipping out, what, what an error that was. Kids have to be taught these routines just as they have to be taught how to add two fractions together. And they have to be reminded of it. Don't just do it once. Because I've made that mistake in the past, right? It's the first lesson of the year. These are our expectations. Set it all out. Beautiful. Here's a flipping poster on it. All that kind of stuff. But if that isn't revisited and rehearsed, just like you would do, if you're using kind of spacing or interleaving or anything like that when you're actually teaching some knowledge, it's the same with behavior. It's got to be constantly revisited and you've got to follow through on it, be consistent and so on. But it's not just a one-off thing that you set your stall out at the start of the year. That's a big one for me. I also love the idea that, that Greg describes as, as seeing the teacher as a puppet that's under your control. And that's important for a couple of reasons. First, it kind of, for me, it helps you view kind of teaching behavior as almost like an experiment, a good scientific experiment. I'm gonna change this and I'm gonna observe what happens to the behavior. But for me, the main thing is it, it gives distance between you as the teacher and you as the person. So when kids are slagging you off and you catch them saying something under their breath that you know is aimed at you or they're just being horrible to you, as inevitably is going to happen, particularly if you're teaching a topic like maths, which kids have a, have a, a lot of kids have a bad, bad relationship with, then it just helps it just helps you get through the flipping day and get through the, the nights as well where you're just not feeling so crap about yourself if you just think, no, actually, they're reacting against the character that is the teacher, not me, the person. And that, that's a big, big thing for me. To, and it took me many, many years to, to kind of get my head around that. And I'm not perfect at it now. And I still I take things to heart. I want everyone to like me. Um, I, t I take things personally, but you, you've got to not just have a thick skin as a teacher. I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. You've got to try and impose this distance between you as the teacher, as a role, as a professional, and you as a person. We're all actors, after all. That's, that's what you've got to be if you're a teacher. So I thought that was really interesting. And also, I mean, if behavior is so, so important, as, as Greg thinks it is, and I believe it is too, the fact that you've, <laughs> if you're going to join a school, you should try your best to find out as much as you possibly can about the behavior policy. And I would add to what Greg said, um, I try and visit the school uh, beforehand. And excuse me, I'm, just, <coughs> I'm choking on an almond nut here. That would be a, it wouldn't be a bad way to go, dying during a, a take, Mr. Barton Maths takeaway. But hopefully I can make it through this, uh, this unscathed. Um, I'd add to what Greg was saying about trying to visit the school before you apply. or if it, um, And it, it's fairly easy to do. Schools are quite open to this. And it's, um, it, it, I guess it's a, fair, a lot easier to do if you're moving school, if you're an experienced teacher, than it is if you're a new teacher and you, you don't really kind of know the ropes and stuff. But I think most schools are open to that. Just visit for the day. 
gets you to meet the department, but also you just get a sense of what's going on in the school, just walking down the corridors. But don't be afraid, as Greg said, to ask schools about their behaviour policy because, and this was a really interesting point that I'd not picked up on, schools with, let's just put this in inverted commas, bad behaviour policies may well be proud of it. They may well be saying, oh yeah, we don't, we don't need a behaviour policy, we, you know, um, we don't believe in detentions and all this kind of stuff because people have really kind of strong views on this and you need to decide what, what's right for you, what kind of school you want to, to, to be in, particularly if it's your first job. I mean, the amount of teachers who I did my teacher training with, God, what, 14 years ago, who are not teaching now and left the profession in the first couple of years because of the behavior in the first school that they joined is flipping scary. So f forget everything else about the school. You've got to nail down that behavior, figure out, have you got that support? Cause you're gonna be, you're gonna find it hard as a new teacher you're going to find it hard as an experienced teacher you're going to find it hard if you move school god almighty that's a flipping baptism of fire so finding out as much as you can and being explicit about it about the behavior policy absolutely crucial a few other things uh, motivation i love talking about motivation um I thought it was interesting the conversation Greg and I I had about that it's absolutely fine to give kids memorable experiences, whether it's the Swiss roll one, whether it is, you know, battling outside, as Greg said, in a history lesson. But be aware of the cost. The cost may well be that they don't learn as much as they would in a structured environment, whether in practice questions and, and or taking into account the limits of working memory and Bjork's desirable difficulties and all this kind of stuff. So that's potentially the cost, uh, but the the benefit of doing those those kind of activities is they are memorable. They they give kids a buzz. They go home. They tell their parents about it. My kids remember the Swiss roll thing, flipping four years after it. That those kids, those year 11s uh, who I taught in year seven, since I wrote the book, they've now finished. They did the GCSEs this summer. Still flipping talking about the Swiss roll thing. On the last lesson we had together, they're still mentioning it. So. I think I'd still do that lesson now, but I would. The difference would be, I wouldn't pretend that I was I was teaching this, those kids as effectively the content and the knowledge as I was as I would have been if I didn't have that particular context in there. If that makes sense. But I'm not saying that memorable experiences are a bad thing. They can lead to real long-term gains. Um, I thought it was interesting, Greg, speaking about quiz games, how they can be motivating, but actually have the advantage over a lot of other kind of activities that a lot of kids' time is spent actually thinking about the questions themselves. And that reminds me of Dan Willingham's favourite, uh, well, one of my favourite things Dan Willingham says, that um, to, when you're planning a lesson, Dan Willingham says one of the most useful things a teacher can ask themselves is what will the students be thinking about at this point in the lesson? And if it's not what you want them to be thinking about, then it's probably not a good idea to do it. So if kids are doing a quiz-based game, they are probably diverting, um, or devoting, sorry, a lot of their mental capacity to thinking about the questions, which is a good thing. But then think of some of the other activities I've done throughout the year, notably those involving flipping scissors and colouring pens and all that kind of stuff. What are kids thinking about during that? All right, they may be motivating, but motivating for what? Motivating to make a pretty poster. I want them to be motivated by getting successful, by thinking about the subject that I'm teaching them.
A um, couple of other things before I wrap up now. Uh, planning. Um, again, myself and Greg talked a lot about that in our first interview. I suggest, really suggest you check that out. But the thing that came out for, for me for, from this one and, and it comes out of Greg's book is do the questions yourself. And I, whilst that is an absolute banker for maths teachers, I'm pretty sure that's true of other teachers. I think I've read um, in, I forget which book it is now, which is terrible. I think it might have been Harry Fletcher Wood's book, but about the idea that English teachers kind of doing short answer responses or even full essay questions themselves before the lesson instead of trying to kind of wing it in there and there's so many advantages of this um, as Greg mentioned there's the whole thing that you're less likely to make mistakes but as I mentioned too as well you it just gives you a better sense of how difficult the content that you're asking kids to do is so so important to do the questions it's time consuming but flipping heck you reap the benefits uh, feedback. God almighty, how many times are we hearing this now about whole class feedback? Those of you who listened to Slice of Advice on what I learned this year may have uh, listened to Andrew Percival's uh, contribution to that thing. Um, he's a primary school teacher and they don't do any written feedback whatsoever. They've scrapped it. They got brilliant stats results and the teachers are absolutely well happy. Just much better work-life balance. They don't feel there's been any disadvantage and only positives to it. Greg's not writing comments in feedback. He's doing whole class feedback in a really manageable way. Mark McCourt, when I interviewed him and Mark's coming back on the podcast, what was his, what was his flipping phrase? He said, he's never marked a book in his life. And when I heard that, I thought, come on, mate you're winding me up there but well it wouldn't surprise me now as well as i know mark that he's just refused to mark a book but is that a bad thing is it really do, do kids benefit a lot from this written feedback and how long does it flipping take i'll tell you what second on my list um if i move schools um first is finding out about the behavior policy Second is finding out about this marketing and feedback policy because if schools are expecting me to do hours and hours of written feedback and I'm not seeing any evidence that it is bringing any benefit whatsoever, I'm not too sure I could work in that school. So again, something else, something else to think about. And finally, I just wanted to reflect on this, uh, productive failure. Now, uh, Greg mentioned it, that um, it's part of his PhD research, and, and I, I, I reference it in my in my book. It was one of the, the kind of last things I read about, and it was just as I put my book together, I had a really kind of coherent argument that novices learn best from explicit instruction, and then as you become more expert, you, you start to withdraw the explicit instruction and move into kind of more open-ended, less structured uh, forms of instruction, like inquiries or problem solving and all that kind of stuff. And then I started reading about Kapoor's work on productive failure and I thought oh god what's going on here why, why, can't, why can't everything just be simple and everyone agree on stuff and the idea behind productive failure is exactly as Greg explained it that you start by giving kids something that they essentially can't do and um, that maybe they've got the tool the toolkit but the, you know they've got the knowledge but it's all sep separated and segregated they've not they've not put it together and you're not really expecting them to put it together but you give them this exposure to it and greg mentioned and standard deviation is is kind of a classic study on this kids haven't been taught standard deviation but they know about range and make perhaps interquartile range and little bits about mean and all this kind of stuff and they mess around with these numbers and then when you teach them the formerly standard deviation, the idea is that they're almost primed for it. And whether that means primed in the sense of their long-term memory, the schema are a more kind of amenable to taking in the new information, or whether it means primed in the sense that they're more attentive, that they now see a purpose to what you're about to teach them, which reminds me of the inquiry maths kind of stuff. And it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating idea. 
I have obviously haven't done the research that, that Greg's done on this, and I, I can't wait to hear what, what Greg finds out. But I'll just chuck in my kind of five pennies worth. Um, and I mentioned this in the book. I think that can work with certain classes. Imagine you've got a top set um, who are kind of eager to try anything and they've had really positive experiences with maths in the past. You give them something, they struggle away at it. Their heads are down, they're scratching their heads. Oh, I can't do this, but I'm battling, I'm battling, battling it. And then you help them out. And I can see that working. That kind of failure is productive there. That struggle has been worthwhile. But let's flip that around. Let's imagine you've got a year 11 class, middle set. You've got some kids in there who for five years, seven years, nine years have failed with mathematics. They've struggled and they failed. They, they've got a target that they're not confident in reaching. They've been taught flipping fractions about seven years in a, in a row and they're still adding the numerators and denominators. Will productive failure work with those students? Or would that productive failure not be all that productive and just be another failure, another topic that they can't do? I can imagine it now. Why are you giving me this to do so? I can't do this. And then whenever I say, okay, well, I'm going to teach you now, the confidence is gone. They already think, well, this is a difficult topic. This is a difficult subject. I've already failed at this. I failed at it five minutes ago. So potentially it could work but I'm not so sure it was gonna work that well. I think it's too risky for the kids who have always struggled with maths and have a bad experience with maths. But maybe that's just my failings as a teacher. And I make that point throughout my book that I'm not saying this is right or wrong. Maybe I'm going about things the wrong way, but I just think for some students and for quite a significant number of students, it is best to simply teach them the right way first in a really clearly well-planned way with well-chosen examples, well-chosen delivery, well-chosen practice questions, so on and so forth. Anyway, so there you go. Um, all that remains for me to do is once again thank Greg Ashman. Um, I really hope you enjoyed that interview. Honestly, I flipping love speaking to Greg. I love reading his blogs and his book is phenomenal. Just just get it bought. It's, you will not be disappointed. It's a great present as well to give if you've got any, um, if you're working with any, if you're a mentor of any NQTs or you know someone who's going into teaching or something like that. Really good present to, to give them. It gives them a really solid grounding. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show. And a huge thank you to you, my loyal listeners. I, I, I dread to think how many hours of this podcast we're doing. Well over 100 now, uh, possibly approaching 150. Um, thank you for keeping listening in your thousands. Thank you for spreading the word, particularly to your non-maths teaching colleagues as well. Um, I believe this episode um, is a really valuable one um, for them. So please, um, if you've got someone who hasn't listened to the show and perhaps they're put off by the word maths in the title, um, Give them a listen to this one. Maybe this will, will get them on board and then introduce them to the back catalogue. The Bjorks, Dylan William, Daisy Christodoulou, Doug Lamoff, all the big names are there. Um, and I will be back with um, lots more uh, podcasts in the coming weeks and months. Different styles of podcasts, hopefully some more slice of advice, some book club ones. And of course, these long form interviews and conference takeaways and all that kind of stuff. But until then, thank you so much for listening. You take care of yourselves. And bye for now.